You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since We are back. What begins another chapter? This is our, essentially, in a way, our first episode after our top 30 every year. So here we are and going on, what is it, year seven, I guess? Seven? Um, seven, yeah. We're in year seven, I guess. Mm-hmm. September will be yeah. seven. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, yeah, we've been doing this for a while now. So, yeah, here we go. Um, this week, we were back on the, uh, well, back on the, I don't know, back on the horse, back on the pony, back on the baloney pony, something. Yeah. <laughs> With uh, Diabolic DVD sponsored episode, please head over to DiabolicDVD.com for all your hard to find genre needs. This week, uh, we'll uh, program the show, so we're doing Short Eyes from 1977, directed by Robert M. Young, and Planet of the Vampires. I'm going to say Pyres, because what I really want to say is Planet of the Vampires, uh, <laughs> 1965, directed by some guy named Bava. So that is what we're covering. It's good to be back to a normal schedule. Uh, we're both kind of rested. I'm having some coffee. And, uh, yeah, what have you been watching lately? <laughs> had a pretty good week. I obviously um, wanted to get away a little bit away from the prestige stuff or kind of high-minded things, not to discredit the films I've been watching, but, you know, just some more pulpier genre stuff. So um, first one I watched, it, of course, it wasn't an intentional thing, but... I ended up going to Italy, and I did Lamberto Bava's uh, directorial debut, Macabre. It's always kind of kind of intentional. <laughs> you don't yeah. you don't think it is, but somehow, some way, <laughs> it, it, it certainly yeah, it definitely in some ways it certainly is. It's even if it's I'm not fully uh, aware of it. Yeah, it's definitely something that you know comfort food, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this one's. Pretty good, man. I, I got to give it up to Lamberto. I think when I we I talked about a Lamberto I'd watched, kind of a deep cut of his a few months ago before we started cramming, and how I was impressed. And I think I was saying that everyone was kind of saying Michele Suave was the kind of the guy that was holding the 
the, the uh, Italy's sort of genre film industry afloat uh, in the late 80s. But I feel like Lamberto's work, kind of an obvious statement, I guess, I'd say, but some of his lesser known stuff has really impressed me that I've seen. This was really good, slow burn and steady hand. And it's, I guess it's ironic because we're talking about Daddy Baba today. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Daddy saw this film and he said, I can die at peace now, <laughs> knowing my son. Interesting. Um, I mean, my son has, you know, uh, basically like a, made a, a horror film that's, you know, fantastic. Essentially, he said something a little more yeah. kind of stately and poetic than I'm saying it, but it was kind of, a, you know, his stamp of approval. And yeah, it's it's a good film. I, I enjoyed it. It's got some some good performances and um, it's bizarre and gross. And I guess it's macabre. So <laughs> there, there you go. go. <laughs> uh, next up was a made for HBO film. Got a great title. Um, I keep wanting to say Robert Forrester, but I think it's it's um, man. Talk about Blanco City, uh, Lithgow and Urich, or you know, a seventies kind of cop guy. Oh man, it's gonna bug me. Who uh, anyway? The movie's called Glitter Dome. I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. I'm gonna take a look while we're talking here mm. uh, about two two cops um, investigating uh, James Garner. Goodness. Colleen Dewhurst, Margot Kidder. Um, it uh, about two cops, and they're investigating the murder of a movie mogul, I guess, or producer. Um, he was a pedophile, had a lot of enemies. So, uh, you know, it's a Joseph Wamba adaptation, and unfortunately his adaptations don't really get, uh, I think, adapted as, as well as they could. They don't translate as well on the screen sometimes. It's too bad because there's some kind of, so the humor, if they had kind of played it pulpier and whatnot, I would have enjoyed it more. But, you know, not bad. Hmm. Uh, then film that's kind of had the community on fire lately. And uh, CDR, I think, had posted about it. And we've all kind of got on the rabbit hole. Um, Roar. Yeah. So, man, this film, for those who don't know, go watch the trailer for Roar. And then come back and listen to the show. Um Roar looked so insane that when I told my wife, Teresa, about it, even she wanted to watch it. Yeah. Like, it's so insane. Good intentions uh, gone bad. Good intentions gone very bad. For those that don't know, just a quick and dirty, um, Tippy Hedren, Melanie Griffith, uh, Tippy's husband, they love big cats. They decided yeah. they're going to live with big cats and <laughs> film a movie with 150 big cats. Um Living amongst them. I don't know about you, but it just sounds like a bad idea to me right from the get go. But I don't. Oh, I don't love the idea like of being around big terrible, cats. Terrible. I don't know how you can't think. I could kind of maybe, maybe, maybe see if they had one. Yeah. And yeah. it'd live with them. That's doable. Well, relatively speaking. Yeah. Even but saying that, is, I think of Siegfried and Roy, and I think. Yeah. You know, things can go oh, wrong yeah. in a in a quick second there. Things can go pear-shaped very fucking quickly. So they got like 150 cats. It's a miracle no one was killed making this film. However, cinematographer Jan de Bont <laughs> Jan got de scalped <laughs> yeah. making this film. Jan de scalped. Jan de scalped. And he, you know, in true professional form, got his uh, head stapled back on his scalp and went back to work and finished shooting the film. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's a mess of a film, but it's a beautiful mess. It's the kind of thing you'll never see again on film. Ever. Um, and I think because of that inspires sort of beautiful lunacy, it, it'll be very high on my, my top 30 first time watches only because of that. Like there's 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 things you'll see put to film that you will never see again. Like yeah. this room 
your heart just starts pounding because as a human, you know, we're all about survival. And you see like <laughs> 30 fucking lions flood a room with mm. some dude in it. Yeah. And your heart just starts pounding. Yeah. Um, but very cool. Very cool. An animal, that can, a man, an animal that can swipe and disembowel you within a second. And they got oh, yeah. 30 of them in there. They got fucking stampeding elephants at one point. And yeah. It's crazy. It's one of those movies uh, that disappeared for years. I remember reading about it. Never saw it, of course. I remember reading about it. Yeah. And I've read so much about it over the years because it was kind of like one of those holy grails for a while. And Draft House has picked it up and they're going to release it and get it out there and stuff. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I'll be interested to watch and see if there's a documentary or something on the disc. It's a disc that I'm going to buy day one. Um, I told a few people about it, like my dad, my father-in-law. I mean, it's just one of those you can't help but tell people about. Good on CDR for kind of bringing it back to the forefront for us. Um, yeah, it's it's a good one. Uh, like I said, mess of a film in some regards. You don't know what they were thinking. Oh, my fucking computer's going to restart in 15 minutes. You know, <laughs> Windows, uh, what is this? What came after 7? Is it 8? The one that they, they try to make look like a, a tablet? Yeah. You fucking cunt. This, this, I hate this setup. <laughs> yeah. um, Does it give you an option to change the amount of time? Like the old Windows? No, I'm, I'm sure some, somewhere. <laughs> uh, where would I even find that? I'll just keep talking for a minute and I'll look in a minute. Yep. Um, so, yeah, this, this just, you know, it's worth seeing, certainly. Next up was one that Davey Mack had recommended because he saw me and my kids tobogganing. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, from a guy that I think is kind of underappreciated. He's made some solid stuff. James Glickenhouse's yeah. The Soldier with Ken Wall. Wasn't it Glickenhouse that did Exterminator? Yeah, man. Yeah, right. And he also did uh, the one with um, Danny Aiello and The Protector with J- Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Which is fun. I mean, and he also did um, uh, with um, Sam, no, 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 with Peter Weller and uh, the Double Deuce. Um, <laughs> uh, Sam, Sam Elliott. Sam yeah. Elliott. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which That's, the American uh, title, I think, is or one of the other AKAs of Europe is Blue Jean Cop. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. all four of those are really solid films. Yeah. And this one I really liked. It's kind of at the height of the Cold War. Yeah, he only Or did, maybe not the height. But. It's weird. He only directed eight films. Eight wrote eight films, directed eight films. And you got McBain, Shakedown. That's the Blue Jean Cop one. Uh, yeah. The Protector, The Soldier, The Exterminator, The Astrologer, Slaughter of the Innocents, and Time Master. I've never seen Time Master, Slaughter of the Innocents, The Astrologer, and I've somehow never seen McBain, which I know yeah, it's pretty crazy. the uh, Cult of Muscle <laughs> gentlemen are big fans of. So That's pretty nuts. Yeah, I would like to see it at some point. It's so strange. I feel like with him, and this is just a very sort of wild assumption, but I know that he was getting into like releasing films proper, like, um, like American Zotrope. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe he bit off more than he could chew and he fucked himself. Yeah. Because you'd see at the beginning of his films like House Entertainment, I think it would say. So yeah. maybe he bit up more than he could chew. Yeah. And it financially ruined him or mentally ruined him. And yeah. he was like, you know what? I'm out. Yeah, he executive produced uh, Maniac Cop and Frankenhooker and Hinnelotter stuff. So it looked like four or five Hinnelotter things. And he oh, produced yeah. uh, Tough and Deadly, which we did not too long ago. Yeah. No, The Soldier is really fun, though. It's it's yeah, not it's like your really cerebral kind of cool British spy film in the 60s. It's very American. And very pulpy. It's very GGTMC spy film. Yeah, Steve James is in it. It's really fun, man. There's some great locales, some amazing fucking stunts. Like I'd love, I'd love to to talk about this film at one point on the show. Yeah, we can do it. I'd be down for it. It's a good one, man. It's really cool. 
Um, then I, again, spy thing. I was on a spy tip, which I'm not really usually a spy guy. And uh, I did Billion Dollar Brain. Oh, yeah, the yeah, Ken, Ken Russell. Russell. Yeah, the Ken Russell movie, yeah. Yeah, which is weird because I've never seen a Harry Palmer film. And here I am starting at this one, which I think is sort of back end. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's good. Um, I was putting together, together a wicker dresser when I was watching. So I had to stop sort of doing the wicker dresser because spy films don't really lend themselves to wicker dresser assemblage. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> even ones as absurd as this, I feel like this is... And again, I don't have much to base on other than just the vibe I got. I feel like this is sort of absurdist spy stuff. It feels like Ken Russell's riff, like his Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, I guess you know I've only ever seen it once, and for some strange reason, I get that confused with Jonathan Kaplan's Terrence Hill American movie, which I can't remember the name of, Mister Billionaire or something like. That. I can't remember what. Oh, name I don't know. I don't remember, but it's something like that, and I get those two confused all the time. So. Yeah, but it's it's cool. I mean, I'd like to see the other Harry Palmer ones first. So, oh, you great, know, not bad. Great name, Harry Palmer. You know? It is, man. That's an urban myth, dare by. <laughs> yeah. I can testify to that. Or is it? <laughs> or is it? <laughs> it's like that's like you just hit us with the uh, the Umberto Lenzi Nightmare City. It was all a dream, or the dream becomes reality. <laughs> you know. Uh, next up was Super Buddies. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, an instant, Braden's pick. You know, Coop said this was the weakest of the Buddies films. I really like this one, man. Yeah, it's very goofy. It's very goofy and fun and superpowered dogs and mm-hmm. B-Dog still kills me and <laughs> I just can't get behind B-Dog, man. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. like he's like the sideways hat-wearing, sort of chain-wearing hip-hop dog. So, <laughs> yeah. and I like hip-hop, man, but B-Dog's just... Yeah, a little irritating you know, there. B-Dog gets... It, he goes a little too far. He does, man. <laughs> Uh, next up is one that Sammy repped for, and I figured it would be a really good one to hoist on my wife. And we watched uh, on instant Wetlands. Nice. Yeah, it opens. I was fucking queasy. She's barefoot, <laughs> walking through a disgusting public washroom, rubbing her puss on <laughs> a fucking <laughs> no. gross toilet seat. And yeah, <laughs> um, I knew my wife would like it. I I think this. It's weird, you know, like. I think the film at times gets a little too repulsive for its own good. Yeah. Like I feel like the the human not the human, the um the homemade tampon scene. Yeah. I never thought I'd get to say that when I'm talking about a film. <laughs> the homemade tampon scene felt a little kind of rub our noses in how repulsive it is. Yeah, it did. But I think it's a very funny film. And I think, you know what, at its core, it's a really sweet film with I think a lot to say. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's it's much more like some people were like, how how could anyone like this character? I thought she was very sweet and likable, and you could kind of see her motivation for things. And you know, I think I'd, I'd love to hear what people smarter than I sort of interpret her. You know what her um, why she was the way she was. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of it. You know, again, I can only bring what I bring to the table, and mm-hmm. being a child of divorce, and you know, maybe. I don't know. Fuck. I'm not a woman. Yeah. Uh, I think know, surface, surface level, it's, you know, it's a movie that's out to gross you out a little bit. But underneath all of that. There's a heart. Yeah. That that selling point of the grossness. Um, there's actually a really good story of a girl that uh, obviously has issues and really misses her parents being together. And, and you know, it, I think yeah, I told you it made me tear up a little bit. It made me laugh. It yeah. made me cry. Made you puke. Yeah. I mean, what films can do all those things? Yeah. You know? Pretty gross. Um, yeah, but no, I think it is. I think it does speak to her need, her crying out a little bit for 
love and attention. I think it stemmed from that, and then it kind of became an organic part of her was to be kind of into gross out shit. How'd you like that shaving um, scene? Man, if you ever want to see a chick shave her asshole uh, on screen, <laughs> this is your film. I'll tell you the scene with, I don't want to say too much, but the scene with the handle on the bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That really, man. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> like this guy should do some horror films, man. Yeah. Like he's, he's got it going on. He made me like, uh-huh. squeamish. Yeah. Some gross stuff with the, uh, yeah. the lost control of bowels. It's, oh my uh, God. It's a really well made film, though. Like this guy's yeah. got talent. Yeah. Or this, I think it's a guy that made it. I, I think it is. You know, I have to think a woman was involved in the writing, though. I'd have to think because anytime I see women really fleshed out, what I would assume or what I perceive to be, you know, you know, complicated, and I, I don't mean that um, disparagingly. I mean that yeah. beyond just sort of this simple kind of one-note characters we see so often, unfortunately, from women in film. But yeah, I really dug this, man. I'm glad you you repped for it because it was cool. You and Josh did so. Yeah, I think it has a you know, it's got an exploitation idea, but I think you know, it it, it pulls that off and it pulls off good filmmaking at the same time. So I, I, I hope more people check it out. I know some people really hate it. I mean, it's going to be divisive. It's, it's, it is. It's a divisive thing by nature. So I know Wendy hated it. I thought Wendy would find it was kind of cool, but yeah, Wendy fucking hated it. I wonder what Zom and Loaf would think. Man, that would be a funny <laughs> review. Zom and Loaf, get on and like Night of the Hunter and this. I don't know what how you're going to connect the two. I'm sure we could find a way. Children in peril, maybe. Children affected by children in one-parent families. Yeah, there you go. There you go, and how that affects them. Um, there's next a, there's a religious was, angle too on both of those. There definitely, there definitely is a religious angle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, the ripple effect of of divorce on on uh, children. Yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely something there. Um, yeah. So next up, I decided to redo the keep going with the wicker the wicker uh, dresser assemblage. Which man, I, I gotta say, I was proud of myself. That motherfucker. Had a lot of drawers and moving parts, man. That's not usually my forte, so <laughs> good. I came correct. Nice. But uh, next up was Cemetery of Terror, which is a Mexican film. It's a combination of um, thriller and Halloween with Hugo Stiglitz in the Donald Pleasance role, <laughs> and uh, and it's an and, and Monster Squad a little bit. Uh, it's fucking amazing. Nice. It's got a DVD release, and it's such a piece of junk, but it's so cool to see 80s, kind of 80s suburban Mexico. I don't know. I can't really put it into words, but it, it was a nice, clean DVD. Um, It's really cool, man. I really had a lot of fun with it. I was just with the doctor ordered. Uh, and then I decided to finish the the uh, <laughs> the Wicker Dresser with Ghetto Blaster. <laughs> yeah. Which is a fun, vigilante kind of, you know, local boy comes home after being, I don't know, it's at war, I think, or somewhere and comes back into town. There's some ruffians about and he's got to deal with their cases. And it's it's pretty good, I thought. I liked it, I think, more than you did. It's uh, it's above average fare for this kind. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think we're pretty much on the same page. I think it, you know, I think... The problem with that one is the same problem people have with the most violent year. I think this past year is that I want that title. I want it it's to better be, pop. Yeah, I want it to be insane. And it's just oh, yeah. not insane enough, but it is still pretty. Huh. Well, it's very GGTMC in some ways. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's above average though. It's yeah. above average for sure. Oh yeah, it's certainly watchable. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, my pick, Family Movie Night. We did the Boxcar Children, which was on Instant. Looked looked to me, at least aesthetically, to be a little bit like a Miyazaki or kind of one of these heavier kids animated films not super heavy but 
I, I don't know. I like this one. It's a clean, simple story. It's not kind of quick cut. Um, it's about four four siblings. They have no parents, and they live in. They find a box car to live in, like a train box car, and it's it's sweet and simple and doesn't have major heavy stakes. But um, I liked it. It was you know simple, kind of relaxed. It was it was good on instant. Like I said. Um, I just looked up Ghetto Blaster. Interestingly, the director of Ghetto Blaster now is an assistant editor at Disney, and he worked on Planes, Fire and Rescue, The Pirate Ferry, Planes, Tinkerbell, and the Lost Treasure, and The Crazy Hell. Oh, wow. How that all <laughs> comes together, yeah. It's <laughs> pretty crazy. Uh, next, next up was one I'd mean to see for some time. It, I kind of got a Pupi Avati vibe from it when I'd heard about it, and that was kind of confirmed. Kind of working class man's Pupi Avati. It's called House of Blue Shadows. Late cycle giallo, giallo-y, that's kind of in the looser sense of the term. Um, but what's great about it is it's a working man's Pupiavati giallo with a leading man whose acting coach was Bruno Mattei. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, so he goes for it. it, it it's fine. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, then I started to do one I had never seen, man, the great dictator, Charlie Chaplin. I've only seen it for like two or three Chaplin jams. This was really good. I think the speech at the back end, I really, in my heart, believe it's one of the greatest things put to film. Um, it, it's really moving. It's really powerful. Yeah. It's really timeless. I'm, af- um, I'm afraid Steven Seagal saw that when he directed on Deadly Ground. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, there's some really great stuff in this, though. I want to go get, I want to take a more Lloyd. I've never seen any Lloyd. I want to see some Chaplin. I want to see even more Keaton. I want to get into some. Marx Brothers. I just don't want to get into more old comedy, man, because it's yeah. it just kills me. It's so good. The frying pan shit in this was great. It's a bit long though. It's probably about half an hour too long. But yeah, yeah. man, Chaplin had a set of nuts on him to make this film. Yeah, he did. He did. He really did. Uh, next up was Michael Pere, Lunar Cop. Uh, this <laughs> one was really fun. Billy Drago's the bad guy. Great title. Oh man, it's a Mad Max riff with Pere as the the Mad Max character. <laughs> Really fun, really good stunts. Boaz Davidson directed it, so it's really well directed. I had a lot of fun with this one, man. It's not like Pantheon or anything, but you can do a lot worse. It's it's fun. Good stunt work and a good-looking female lead and Michael Perret and, you know, it's cool. Um, then I finished the week. Today, March break with the kids. We were at Ripley's Aquarium here in Toronto, which is a, quite the spectacle. Um, but the light box has Disney classics on all week and we wanted to go see maybe Robin Hood or Sword in the Stone. But the big one for me is Dumbo because that's kind of my mom and I's film. And so we took the kids to see Dumbo and, um, man, that looks good. The pink elephants thing and, and this print looked amazing. Nice. It just looked so good. And I, I have to say, man, I fucking loaf up every time with, uh, <laughs> with the trunks through the, the bars, man. Oh, yeah. I'm sitting there. I look over my mom. She's got a fucking tear in her eye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding my oldest son. He's sitting on my knee, and I'm there's tears dropping on his forehead, on his uh, hair, <laughs> just a mess, bud. But it's it's great. It's you know it's wonderful. And again, that that stuff before Walt died is is without peer in my books. I think it's amazing. It's beautifully uh, drawn, and you can't really beat it. And I got 49 seconds before this fucking computer restarts. All right. So let's uh, let's just pause for a moment. I'm going to try to sure. All right, so the magic of uh, podcasting, uh, there was no break there, even though behind the scenes it took a little bit of time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I only watched a few things this week. Uh, I thought I watched more, but actually I didn't watch that much. Um, I watched uh, Back Issues, the Hustler Magazine story. On Instant, right? Yeah, it's on Instant. Uh, It's pretty good. I mean, if you know the history of the Hustler Magazine, you're not really going to find much... uh, 
something new in there, new information. Uh, there's a few things in there that are pretty good, though. Like some uh, <laughs> some uh, recorded phone calls of uh, Larry Flint when he was in jail. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> him uh, running the show and getting paranoid and stuff and cussing his staff out and fighting with his brother. It's pretty... And a hillbilly comes out in him. You know, he's from... Yeah. He's from the eastern Kentucky there, boy. So That's amazing. Yeah, he's uh, definitely hillbilly through and through. So there's there's some good stuff there and a couple other interesting tidbits. But, you know, it, it's worth a watch. But I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hurry to see it. You're in the mood. There's some nudity in it, though. So you know, not safe for work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, some quite uh, vivid nudity. Uh the graphic. Uh, I watched Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau. No, I really want to see this. How did you see this? Uh, it's on Amazon uh, to rent here uh, in the States for six ninety nine. dollars Nice. Um, it's easily going to go for the longest title of the year, probably. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey, Richard, Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of words. That's a lot, man. It, it's it's pretty good. Um, I mean, it's not great, but it is really pretty good. Uh, fascinating story. And I always thought it was uh, a bit of an urban myth that he actually worked his way back on the set to see what was going on, but evidently it wasn't. He was actually there, so um, dressed up as a dog man. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> very bizarre. But just to listen to this and listen to how insane Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando are to work with, I can only imagine. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Shay, Robert Shay, the guy that owned New Line, he yep. had just finished a movie with uh, Brando, that uh, Don Juan DeMarco movie with Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah. And he had said, after he'd done it to, to friends and people he worked with, he said, I'll never work with Marlon Brando again. And then they, they, <laughs> they get this thing going, and all of a sudden Marlon Brando's interested in playing Dr. Moreau, and Shay was like, shit. Well, you know, maybe it's box office, maybe we'll get him in. Of course, he wants a lot of money. You know, typical Marlon Brando. And uh, he was even more difficult this time around. So yeah, Brando doesn't give a fuck. And he he did not. And Val Kilmer, it's it's easy to see why he never reached superstardom because, man, if the stories on this in this documentary are true, and they have to be because I mean everybody says he acted this way. He he might be one of the biggest pricks, seriously, <laughs> in the history of movies. I mean, what an asshole. He's such What's, a, oh man. He's just so, you know, he just he's so I'm the man. You know, he's so, you know his shit don't stink. He's just very arrogant, very aggressive, and uh just very just kind of mean to his uh his co stars and the people who worked for him and everything. He seems to have gotten a lot better as he's gotten older. Yeah, he seems to have. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's a he's a great actor. Marlon Brando was a great actor, but you know, as we we often say, great actors are sometimes psychopaths. So, yes, I mean, there's a reason why some actors I think are better than others, and it might be because they can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, can you imagine Marlon Brando in like a normal job? No, it's like a shoe, like a shoe salesman or something, or I'm the greatest shoe salesman of all time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I finished up the week with uh, well, the films for the show, but I also watched uh, Death of a Cyclist. This is a uh, Juan Bardem, I think his name, I think it's Harvey, Javier's uh, uncle. Juan, I believe. I hope I'm right. I know it's J.A. Bardem. Watch it be Julio or some shit. No, I think you're right. And then his mother, Pilar. Or Pilash. Did it say Pilash or P-I-L-A-R? I thought I heard that once. But I think his mother was an actress, too. Yeah, Juan Antonio Bardem, I believe is his name. 
I think I'm right. Juan Antonio. Yes. Anyway, uh, we did one of his films before. We did uh, The Corruption of Chris Miller, which uh, we didn't really love, but it was interesting. So I wanted to go back and check out this. This is his uh, fifth film, and it's pretty good, man. Uh, highly recommend it. 1955. Very Hitchcocky. And those of you who like Hitchcock have never seen it. Uh, I think you really like it a lot. And uh, yeah, definitely check it out. It's on Hulu Plus. Criterion released it on DVD. I don't think they ever released it on Blu-ray, but or maybe they will. I don't know. You never know with that stuff, right? So, um, but either way, if you got the Hulu Plus going, uh, check it out. Or obviously, there's other means to get a hold of it. I'm sure, but mm-hmm. uh, definitely would. Uh, you know, for cin- cinephiles, I would definitely make time for it because it is really good. Um, nice twist at the end. Nice, very, very Hitchcockian. Almost so Hitchcockian, you could say even back then he was ripping off Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> so, but hey, you know, it was only his fifth film. So there you go. He had to, you know, he had to get it going there. Great title oh, yeah. too, Death of a Cyclist. It is a great title. Yeah, and then uh, the uh, the Spanish title. Let me butcher it here. Muerto de un ciclista. There you go, man. They'll say that in the movie right now. What about the ciclista? Ciclista, ciclista. <laughs> and there is an actor in there. Uh, I told you on the phone. There's an actor in there. Uh, his name is Carlos Casaravilla. Casaravilla. So if you look up Carlos C A S A R A Vila uh, and look at his face, uh, you'll see why I called him the Spanish uh, Buster Keaton because uh, he's definitely got some uh, some Keaton Keaton esque qualities. Carlos Casa Ravila. R A V I L A. I just want to hear your reaction when you see his face. Holy shit, and some of these pictures, man. I know. A couple of them know, but other ones, it's like, wow. Yeah, he really is. Some of them, he really looks like him. <laughs> it's amazing. Man. So, who knows? <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, he's really good in the film, too. So, yeah, that's all I watched. Um, we're going to take a short break. We actually got breaks this week and come back. And what do you want to do? You want to do it? Uh, is anything you want to talk about first? Or do uh, you, wanna... you call, man. I picked them, so you call it. Uh, we'll go ahead and do short as. I can lead on short as. I don't mind cool. talking. All right, uh, we'll be back right after this. This is Red Brown. <laughs> You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bring me to Dakota! Just see. 
soundtrack. Dig it, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Also known as coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a new breed. <laughs> a shining breed symbol of that. black pride there, baby. Yeah. It's like Dr. Zom. Anyway. Um, okay. So short eyes. Here we go. 1977. Directed by Robert M. Young. Written by Miguel Pinero, and it's important that we mention that because we'll well we'll talk about it here in a second. Uh, a child molester sent to prison finds that criminals exact harsher justice than society. All right, so short eyes. Uh, essentially, what you get here, you think on the surface, is an exploitation prison film. Um, which I'm sure all of us that love exploitation cinema have seen our fair share of exploitive prison cinema. Absolutely, with underground fighting or women in prison (laughs) or sort of criminals jockeying for, you know, power in prison. Mm -hmm. There's so many shades of prison film um, that I wanted to do one that was more of just a kind of straight up drama that, you know, still works as a prison film. And this was based on a play by Miguel Miguel Pinero, and uh, he died, unfortunately, died young. Very young, and I think it was based on his experiences in prison. Yes, yes, he uh, died from liver disease, so I don't know if he was a heavy drinker or just some other issues. Uh, he was in Breathless and uh, Fort Apache, the Bronx, as well, so you can see him in there. He plays Go-Go in here, so he's in here for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I don't think he won a Tony, but I think he was nominated for a Tony. For the uh, for this film, for, for for this play, so. uh, didn't it win? I thought it. I know. I can tell you this. It was. It, it kind of caught fire um, when he, he he. We should say he wrote this in prison. Yeah. He had done like a workshop. He was doing like a creative writing workshop in prison. Wrote it, and then it was like talk about rags to riches. He's the toast of New York City's theater scene, straight yeah. out of prison. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's interesting. Hang on, let me. I'm texting my wife. Uh, she, we're a high tech family. She's upstairs. I'm downstairs. Um, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why? Well, it's just easy way. <laughs> it's just the easy way to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in, in this, uh, you know, like I say, he's got a small role. But this feels like somebody who's had a prison experience. Now, when I say that, this is not an exploitation film. Like Will said, this is more of a drama, and this is a very heavy, heavy drama. Uh, not heavy handed, but it's very heavy. Um, because it feels more grounded in reality, a reality that, of course, unless you've ever been to prison, and of course, I don't know what prison's like now, but this is prison in the maybe mid-70s, early 70s that he may have been in there. Um, I know there's some rules and regulations that are in place now. I know there's a lot of, there's still a lot of uh, mingling among the uh, the groups and stuff, but I do know that, you know, well, from what I've read, that racism is still prominent, uh, it's still very prevalent in, in prison, you know, get with your crew and you know, stay with your people and all that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe not all prisons, but certainly some. And um, we get a real strong taste of this and uh, of that in this. We get uh, we got the Hispanic faction. We got the, uh, the Puerto Greek. Rican. We should say, I think, yeah. more specifically, even, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe Puerto Rican is more specific. We got uh, the black uh, faction. We got the Muslim black faction. I guess they're almost the same thing, but they are a little bit different because El Rahim is. He stands off a little bit from like the other guys, I think. Uh, we get Longshoe and the Whites, uh, Joseph Carberry, who fucking hates buttons. 
Man, does he ever. <laughs> he was really. This came out he in was, 77. He must have got an early copy of that Saturday Night Fever soundtrack there, buddy. Well, we know now where Brian Higgins <laughs> gets his sartorial, uh, at least his, his. I was going to say ability, but I guess it would be inability. He's got strong kind of, <laughs> to, give, to paint a picture, he's the kind of guy that doesn't do up any buttons but still tucks in the shirt, his dress shirt. Yeah, that's a that's a strong statement when you go that route. I mean, because you got to have that 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 V's got to be even. It's got to be right above that belt loop, or else you look like a slob. So you gotta you gotta go strong there. You gotta be symmetrical. You know, you gotta be you gotta be on top of your game. And that that thing never gets out of shape, man. I mean, it's always going on. He's got he's got a different kind of strong tuck game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so into this story is woven this tale of a man who is locked up for child molestation. So now we get into some uh, even heavier territory because child molestation, at least the urban myth goes or the legend goes, or maybe the truth is, I don't know, not been there, but it's something even prisoners frown upon. And uh, yes, they tend to mistreat these individuals. And of course, in, in years past, because of certain guards and everything else, uh, they would sometimes, you know, it's basically feeding the weak fish to the to the sharks, right? So... In walks Bruce Davidson, and what has to be either a career-killing performance. Um, Obviously, it didn't kill his career because he's still around. He's still working. He's a great character actor, but I don't know. I don't know if it was ever going to help him get any more lead roles after this. (laughs) Yeah, it's a real tricky thing. I was trying. I, you know, forgive me if I sound sloppy. I'm very tired as a semi. Um, I had thought about Davidson's decision. Oh, you and I had spoken about it. Dylan, Dr. Dylan something that was in happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dylan Thomas. Anyway, anytime you take on a role like this. Dylan Baker? Dylan Baker, I yeah. think it is. You you really run the risk of um, shooting yourself in the foot creatively. Yeah. Or at least professionally. Not yeah. creatively, but professionally because people don't want to give you work because everyone thinks of you as the pedophile. Yeah, especially if you pull it off well. Yes. And I think... Uh, I will have to say that Dylan uh, Baker, if that's his name, I hope we get it right. I hope we're getting that right. He pulls it off almost a little too well because at the point where every time I see him, I immediately think of that performance. <laughs> yeah, that, that fucking dog. Yeah. And Davison, on the other hand, I can think of him in other stuff, obviously. And yep. we've talked about him before. He's just he's he, he just never really kind of caught on as a lead. He he we talked about him and John Hurd when we were talking on the phone. Yes. Um, how absolutely. these guys from the seventies—they just never really caught on. Now, Davison was a child actor as well, but I don't know if Heard was. But I mean, he's—I mean, his credits go all the way back to God knows when. He's got two hundred seventeen credits. So I mean, he's—he's he's heading into Eric Roberts territory. Nineteen sixty-nine was his first credit, but Willard was his big uh, breakthrough. Nineteen seventy-one's Willard. Uh, I'd seen him in the Strawberry Statement a couple years ago when I did the the show with um, Mondo Justin, but. Uh, he, you know, he he's always working, still working to this day. And if you go through his filmography, you'll see a lot of good performances. But this might be one of his best. I mean, he is a well. I mean, he is a bit of a scumbag. And there's some things you find out later that are interesting about this story, which is kind of a poetic justice type thing, or a thing you might find out. And I don't want to give that away, obviously, because that's part of the crooks of the film. It's huge, yeah, yeah. But it is interesting. Uh, there's a great scene, and I th- I think it's the best scene in the movie. But there's several scenes in the movie that are really well done because this is a very dialogue heavy cin- film. Uh, it's very much a play, filmed play in a lot of ways. There's there's some I, I like the sense of claustrophobia the film had with all the bars and the even the small break area. 
Yeah, I do too. And I was going to say one of my favorite things about the film is the cinematography certainly isn't flashy, but it's shot in a way that makes it feel like everyone's kind of on top of each other and it's uh, very oppressive and it's shot really tight, which mm-hmm. is a good thing when it comes to the film. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's really interesting. The, the way that Robert Young, now we should say he directed a few things, um, never really got huge. He's still alive. 1924, the man was born. He's he's made a documentary in 2011 called The Maze, which sounds semi-familiar, but I don't think I've seen it. Um, anyway, he worked on some episodes of Battlestar Galactica, uh, some of the uh, the, the newer show. Uh, did some other stuff, like uh, I'm trying to think of some stuff in here that my, people might know. Uh, Dominic and Eugene. Yes, Stremides. which is a big one. I think One Trick Pony. Was that the Paul Simon film? Yeah, I believe it was. Yes, indeed it was, yes. So he did a few things. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else that really kind of jumps out. Saving Grace, maybe. I don't know. Uh, some of these things I've seen, some of these things I haven't. Uh, some of them never really know great shakes, but this one really stands out to me um, now. Uh, like I say, I haven't seen all of his films, but uh, this one really, Extremities with uh, uh, Farrah Fawcett. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's the, is that the burning... A woman takes revenge on the man who invades her home and tries to rape her. I yeah, I've, I've seen part of that. I, I caught it some time ago, but I've never seen the whole thing. Yeah, check that out at some point. Well, it could be good. Anyway, um, so yeah, he's a workman-like director, you know, successful, and he's, he's done well, um, or did has done well for himself. Obviously, he's a very old, older gentleman now. Um, so yeah, he, he he really, I like the way he films this. Forgive me, I meant to mention the one credit, sorry, that I really wanted to mention that I think showed me when I saw it. I thought, yeah, because this is the second third, second or third time I've seen this. And looking at it through a critical eye now, you know, you kind of see that there's a lot of heart put into what he does. He, he, he's tender enough of hand that mm-hmm. he could handle this material. Yeah. Um, and the credit that really had, <laughs> jumped out at me was that he had done JT which is a really great made-for-TV Christmas movie oh. with Kevin Hooks, um, Trouble Man's son. And uh, it's a, he's a young Harlem boy who finds uh, an old kind of one-eyed cat a few days before Christmas, and he nurses it back to health. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a Harlem very much of the late 60s and 70s. It's rubble and hunger, and it's a very sweet, tender um film it's about an hour long it's on youtube and uh coop and uh, matt turned me on to that because they did for a christmas special a few years ago and yeah i'd seen that young had directed that and it's it's fitting because that's also kind of it has a tender kind of uh feel to it yeah interesting i remember you talking about that i think yeah it's a good one man it's a good one it was one of his first things he did too because he did some i think actually it was his first thing because otherwise he had done documentary work a couple tv things jt's not amazing but his ability to handle subject matter that in the wrong hands could really be a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, you know, he, he handles it quite well. You know, the uh, director of photography, cinematographer, he, he would go on to work in. Uh, uh, he did, uh, you know, stuff like uh, Donnie Brasco and a couple other things. Some some pretty big films. Uh, Good Morning Vietnam. He shot ten minutes. Oh, nice. Barry Levinson films and. He uh, he did uh, some pretty good work. So uh, doesn't like you said doesn't really stand out, but it's very solid. And I, I think when I think of those other films, I think the same thing. 
All right, so the music in the film is by Curtis Mayfield, who's the always great Curtis Mayfield. All time great, yeah. Yeah. In this, he gets a. Uh, <laughs> in this, we get a scene that uh, we were kind of joking about <laughs> on the phone. The uh, Hispanic, Puerto Rican, whatever you want to call it. The um, let's just say Hispanic, because you know, I don't want to say it encompasses everything. Freddie Fender too, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Fr- <laughs> Freddie. <laughs> A little Barry Gibb, uh, Gibb-esque, Freddie. But, uh, yeah, Freddie was known. Right. My, my dad used to sing like Freddie around the house. He used to think Freddie sung funny. but uh, And Freddie does sing kind of funny, but he's got a pretty voice. Yep. A uh, very nice, lilting, very soft voice for a man that doesn't look like he would, right? So, yeah, 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 for real. So in this we get, Freddie basically gets a nice acoustic number with a lot of um, uh, thumping in the background, people humming, singing. But then Curtis Mayfield, man, he gets he gets a full blown number, and the whole time I'm watching, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, "Where the fuck is the guitars? Where's that the drums?" Man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's like, it's like bow 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 bow. I'm like, yeah, man, well, who's yeah. who's playing that shit? You know, they got a cigar box with some strings on it. What's going on? Big uh, time. But nothing uh, there. But anyway, it's a pretty good song. I think the name of the song is uh, it's some kind of prison slang. I can't remember what exactly. I was looking for it on the. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. Enough on the uh, credits. All doo doo whap is strong in here. I don't know <laughs> what that means, but anyway. But anyway, there, there's some other stuff in here by Curtis Mayfield. There's some good songs. Another fool in love. Yes, um, and some and some other good stuff in here. Uh, so definitely worth the soundtrack is is strong. Uh, almost like a black exploitation soundtrack with a straight up drama, which is interesting. Yeah, it is because it's not overly funky. Again, it's played a little more somber in mm-hmm. some ways. I think, vulnerable. I think what Miguel Pinero does correct in his writing, and I think what Robert Young handles well, we know that Bruce Davidson's character, uh, character, as he comes in, we think he's a despicable person because of the things he's done. And he has a, a really great confessional scene, uh, acting-wise. Not, a, not, a, not that it's a great confession. It's just that <laughs> yeah. it's uh, a really, really riveting performance. Uh, some of the best acting I've ever seen from Bruce Davidson. He's usually just, you know the senator or the boss or the executive and that's usually his roles but here he's really pouring himself into it and really kind of giving it his all tells this kind of horrific story and jose perez who's uh the little man in the uh in the film but he's play Iwan, i think's his name and he plays uh you know he's big he's like the he's like the captain of the uh, block you know he's everybody kind of looks up to him maybe he's been there the longest i don't know i don't, I don't think it was ever really explained but uh people seem to look up to him and uh, he kind of takes people like Cupcakes, Tito Goya, under his wing. And, uh, you know, you get Louis Guzman in a really short cameo here who's playing Louis Guzman. But, man, his, even even when he was really young, his his head was large. man. Oh, dude, yeah, it was large <laughs> and in charge, man. <laughs> but uh, And then Tito Goya, Cupcakes, we should say, uh, part of the IMDb trivia, we should go ahead and mention that he has a nice little performance, too. All the guys want to sleep with him. Or, as they say, we all want to fuck you, Cupcakes. That's right, but uh, and it's a it's kind of a powerful performance in a way. Uh, there's a great shower scene between him and uh, I think it's Paco. Maybe yes, it's, and uh, it's a it, it's a lot of time spent on prison rape that I've never seen handled emotionally in any other movie ever. Yeah, it's handled emotionally, and that scene ends kind of clumsy, like the way kind of a guy that was heavy handed would like a courtship scene with him and a girl would end. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because it doesn't end with this really brutal, violent aggression. No. It's like a guy with like a broken off broomstick up his ass. Like it's, <laughs> you know, someone's been rejected and he feels foolish for being rejected. And Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it is handled quite differently. Yeah, it's very bizarre. And, but, but you know, I, I feel like with Miguel Pinero being in prison that maybe this is something he witnessed or maybe he experienced it. Maybe... 
he was in there taking a shower, you know, maybe somebody, you know, saw the new guy, wanted to, you know, new whatever. You know, we all know the prison stories we hear, so yeah, I don't know. There's another character that comes in later, and you know, it's kind of taken up for him. But then he does say, "You sure, you sure are fine, cupcakes." <laughs> does tell him he's fine though, because everybody wants to sleep with Tito Goya. But he would go on to be sadly arrested and uh, for murder, and he I think died four months after this, right? Yeah, and died in prison. So, Ugh. so there you go. Um, but anyway, so we get this kind of great confessional scene. It, it's a it's a weird movie because, in a way, it's. You know, it's showing you the politics of prison life, the racial divides, the allowing fights to keep the peace. There's a fight between uh, Long Shoe and uh, uh, is it El Rahim? I think it's El Rahim. Yeah, uh, yeah. That they let happen to kind of you know kind of cool things down to keep the peace or whatever. Um, but it, it it has this kind of because it's based on a play. It has this almost kind of Altman esque quality to it. Not not cinema wise because it doesn't feel like an Altman film, but it does have that kind of Altman quality of heavy dialogue, people kind of talking over each other a little bit. Uh, if you're not paying attention, you can lose track of who your characters are. It feels real and almost documentary yeah, in it does. some ways. It doesn't feel overly written. And I mean that in the best possible way. It's interesting to me every time I think about prison films that how prisoners try to keep themselves sane by keeping things normal with music and plays and sex and business and all these things that go on in the outside world as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to kind of keep their sanity or to keep themselves busy because some people can't, you know, some people can't just shut down in solitude. Some people need, some need that interaction or they need that physical interaction or they need creativity. So you name it. I mean, there's so many stories of people who have uh, gotten their high school diplomas in prison. Uh, all kinds oh, of things. Big time. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got to do something with that time. So utilize your time. It's yeah. less like in the real world. You got to make use of your time. Yep. So yeah, the, the also we should say that in the uh, the Curtis Mayfield uh, song, there's also backup singers, but I didn't see anybody singing backup. So very very disturbing. It's probably the most disturbing scene in the movie, <laughs> next to the <laughs> razor blade on the toothbrush. Oh uh, man. Yeah. So yeah, this is a film. Well, I mean. It's interesting the way it plays out. It doesn't play out quite like you think it's going to play out because it kind of throws you a last-minute curveball, and uh, it's interesting. And I, I got to say, this is the first time I've seen it, so I kind of expected what happened. I didn't expect the ramifications of what happened, though, or mm-hmm. you know, the story elements of what happened. So that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, you know, when you got desperate men, nothing to lose. You know, actually, you know, as we know, they have this long meeting about what they're going to do with the short eyes guy. They call him short eyes for those who don't know. And I didn't know this either. Short eyes is slang for child molesting. At least it was in the seventies. I don't know what it's called now, but, uh, evidently in prison, short eyes means child molester. And, um, they have this long kind of almost, uh, congressional meeting about what to do with, uh, the Clark Davis character, which is played by Bruce Davis and the short eyes, the quote unquote short eyes. Um, and it's really interesting how kind of society starts to break down. How certain people feel one way, certain people feel another way. It's really interesting to me how things start to break down and how that plays out. Actually, and how certain people, because someone feels in a way that's opposed to the way they feel, how emotionally invested they are in that opposition of opinion. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, that that's the age-old problem with humanity. You know, one person thinks one way, another person thinks another way. And it either ends up being war, murder, fights. I mean, it's just that's just inevitable 
even in a small group of people like this. I mean, it's not super small. There's about maybe 40 people at one any given time in the in the film uh, sitting around these benches and stuff. So I will say this. It's an entertaining film, but not in the usual fashion of prison films. When I see prison films, I'm doing it to escape and just watch the nastiness of prison films or the escape or or the women's shower scene or or whatever, you know, the 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 penitentiary type prison films, the films that are, you know, just true exploitation movies. Emma Fanaka, yo. Yeah, but this one is entertaining, but in a way that's more maybe, I guess maybe enlightening might be the right word or interesting. It feels more kitchen sinky. Yeah. Just it does. You know, it does. It really slice does. of life. It really does. It makes you really feel bad for these guys who make you know bad decisions. It does. Life. It humanizes in a way that you know someone like Herzog or people like that really, yeah. you know, strive to do. Yeah, right? I mean, nobody's really black and white in this. That's right. Everybody, every every character in this is awful as something they may have done. Um, and by saying that, I'm saying like Bruce Davidson. I mean, he's confessing. I'm sitting there like thinking, all right, this is a scumbag character because he did something awful. But he's sitting there mm-hmm. talking about how he'll never see his wife and his kid again. And I'm starting to think, fuck. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's you know, he made you know he. He made a bad decision. He made a bad move. He did this. He did that. And he doesn't get to see his kid anymore. It just it gets into some. It doesn't deal with prison exploitation the way we're used to it, which is no bras and hot tubs. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and and wicked lesbian wardens. It deals with yeah. the real realities and emotional and practical realities of prison life. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think it's it's very special. I don't think it's I don't think it's a great film. No. But I do think I think it's a very very solid film from the seventies that thankfully has been released on Blu-ray because I don't think I don't know if it ever got released on DVD I don't recall but and now it's out there more people can see it obviously legally I mean obviously you can see it other ways you can still see it on YouTube right now Um, and uh, it's kind of nice that it's kind of come back to the forefront a little bit and kind of gotten some relived kind of press this past year because a lot of our communities watched it this year uh silver and gold i think reviewed it last year if not last year the year before last um so it's kind of gotten this new life and i think that's a good thing because i think this movie while making me feel kind of scummy because of how awful the things they talk about and some of the things that happen i mean there's some there's some brutal shit in here toward the back end it really gets i mean it doesn't fuck around and uh but especially because it's taking time to set up the characters as real people. Yeah, yeah, and it, everything feels real. The violence in this feels real. Even the toilet plunging scene feels real. The sound Ugh. they use, it, it even sounds real. Gross. So, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I was uh, glad that this kind of pull. You know, I, I I kind of expected it to be. Uh, you know, I didn't expect it to be an exploitation film. But a little I did more it. so. Yeah, a little more so. I expected you know a little bit more kind of the, those exploitation elements some more shiving maybe a few more shower <laughs> rapes. And yeah. rapes yeah <laughs> but that kind of stuff's kind of talked out in this film it's not that it doesn't happen it just doesn't happen on camera and characters kind of talk about the life they end up leading so i found that pretty fascinating so i'll kick it over to you see what you think nice okay hang on just one minute sure if i may ask you to sure so, yeah, um, I want to say, too, I, I don't think we had mentioned it, Kino Lorber, who's been doing great work, uh, Kino Lorber put it out alongside Scorpion, 
which, uh, you know, and we should say the Blu-ray itself doesn't look, you know, it's not um, the metric for the, the medium, the format, but no. it does look good. Yeah. And there's some supplemental stuff on there that's going to make it worth people's while to buy. Sure. I can't wait to listen uh, to the commentary track, actually. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. And, yeah, I think that, you know, its lack of sensationalism, as we talked about, works well. And um, some of the bleakness. Uh, and, yeah, just to see the the, race, the segregation. And I, I brought up a question that I never occurred to me to ask or to think. Because we do look more at the nuts and bolts of prison life. Is I wonder when prisoners are assigned to a cell, if they're assigned to someone of the same race as them. You know what? I don't know. Hope I never find out, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. It seems to me like it'd be more random than that. But then again, I would think. But then again, like yeah. you know, who knows? But yeah. So anyone who knows that, let us know. Um, uh, yeah, just you know, the solitary nature of it. It's kind of a quiet film in a lot of ways, but still really intense, like we talked about. Um, Longshoe, who we talked, who you mentioned, uh, really good in the film. Joseph Carberry, he had done the role on Broadway or, or in theater. Oh, okay. Um, so he this this was a character that he really knew well. He was a theater guy, lived quite the life. You know, ten years boxing at Gramercy Gym in New York, and did Vietnam and was at Woodstock, and nice. you know wanted nice. to be a special education teacher. Um, but he's, he really inhabits this role. He's really good in the film. He, he feels like almost like a Eurocrime <laughs> kind of character. He's, uh, he's good, but everyone feels really lived in and real. And Yeah, he was in, uh, he was in Night of the Jugger, which I don't remember him as Fogarty. Nor do I. Yeah, I do, nor do I. I do remember him as Ramon in Vigilante, which I know you haven't seen, but yeah, uh, we'll cover at some point. But uh, I do remember him in that. But I've seen he's, he's done a few things. I'm sure I've seen him off and on, a little TV here and there. So he has a, you know, he's got a great face. So. He does in his in his latest IMDb photo. He almost almost looks a little bit like a Titus Welliver type. Yeah, he does. He does kind of yeah. You know, but um, yeah, there's a lot of great kind of unflashy shots in this film. There's you know just I think people, um, just time kind of beating them down, and they got nothing else but time. But then they see the time's fading away. Is shot of one of the uh, the black dudes. He's kind of got his hand in his head and a smoke in his hand, and there's this long ash on it. You know, you can kind of peer into his head and, and think about how despondent a lot of these people feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, yeah, it gives us something that uh, you know we don't usually see. And there's one white dude in this. He looked so sketchy. He was always in the background in every shot in the film. All of a sudden, when Curtis really gets into it with his number, the dude's dancing in the background. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, pretty amazing. But the first yeah, scene I, with you know, that uh, character, I wish there would have been more of that. That character is very interesting looking. I wonder if there's more with that character. And there's a great scene too where they got some prison guys dressed up as females, I think. Oh yeah, they brought them in for I guess a day pass or something. Good good times, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um that first scene with uh, Bruce Davison, Clark and Juan. Jose Perez is tremendous. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous. You it's riveting. You can't take your eyes off it. Should say, Jose Perez, New York guy again. I think probably mostly New York people. If we were to look through the filmography, yeah. but he sent some interesting stuff. Miami Blues, which I've never seen, but know a lot of people like. We had a gun. Um, oh, the Sting Part Two, DC that, Cab, which I think you'd mentioned. Yeah, he's the uh, very small man that uh, 
is sleeping with the wife of the guy that owns DC Cab. So yeah, he's like really a good. Cab in inspector. Yeah, he is. He's really really good. Nails it. Uh, Sean Elliott played Paco, and oh, okay, he was born uh, Elizabeth Santiago. Yeah, mostly New York guys. It looks like. Um, yeah. Man, I can't go an episode without this happening. <laughs> Yeah, you know where I podcast, there's a vent right under, right above me, and it goes right into the living room. And my wife will text me sometimes saying, can you keep it down? I'm like, what the fuck? Don't you know I'm working here? That's right, man. <laughs> okay, just tell me she loves me. I love her too. My honey girl. All right. That's weird. He, he did the Way of the Gun in 2000, and he hasn't done anything since. He just kind of is maybe retired or something. I don't know. Yeah, family life. Who knows? But um, you know, he's quite good, and um, that scene it it's it's you know not as showy as like the scene between the priest and um, Michael Fassbender in Hunger, which I still don't think you've seen. No, uh, and that's not so much a prison film as a film about a man's struggle that just happens to take place in a prison. Right. But uh, that that scene's riveting, like that for me. Really good, really raw, and. Uh, you know, we get some scenes. I think they're smart. They break it up with the, the the monotony and the kind of misery with a few more lighthearted things like the musical numbers, which you know Freddie Fender and and Mayfield had star power. They probably believed in Piano Pinero's work, so they probably you know said, okay, we'll come on. But you know, there's a cockroach racing scene, and you know, it kind of gets some of that stuff. And holy shit, I just found out that Jose Perez uh, was one of the background dancers in supposedly in the Beat It video. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I'll have to look for him. Um, I love the line, who the fuck are you trying to be, Geraldo Rivera? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, I wonder if this is like like the you know the poetic cousin to something like Oz. Because you kind of get the sense like long shoes almost like, was it um, not Kilpatrick? What's his name? McManus? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I've, you know I've who never, knows? I've never watched an episode of Oz. Oh, man. Oz is really good. Yeah, I've never really, watched really it. It's good. one of those ones that... Has escaped me, and I've thought about starting, but I just haven't got to it yet. I will at oh, some point, though. It's really good. The problem was it was on when I was going out partying every Friday night. I think it was on Friday nights. Yeah. So didn't have as much on demand then, and all that kind of stuff. So O'Reilly, that's his name. I always fuck him up. I always give him some other Irish name. But Dean Winters is the actor, and he was he was in John Wick actually. But he's uh, he's really good. He's my favorite character on Oz. But kind of the long shoe character reminded me a little bit of him. Uh, but the one on Oz, a little more working class, but yeah. Um, uh, you're f- oh man, I'll tell you one of the heavy lines in this film. Really, really tremendous line. Uh, okay, I don't want to say spoil it, but uh, you know, a character says it to um, a group of characters. Oh no, I think he says it to. I think he says it to one character actually. He says, "Your fear of this place took over. It took your spirit, and this ain't no pawn shop." Yeah. I like that line. I like that line. It was good. But, uh, yeah, I don't have a whole lot of more notes. So we can get into our maker breaks, which is, of course, um, maker break scene, most valuable thing, MVT in our score. Yeah, I was looking. I was uh, doing a little research on Freddie Fender's uh, filmography. Oh, uh, no way. It looks like he did nine films. I didn't know that. This would be the first time I think I've seen him in anything. So I never saw the yeah. Milagro uh, Beanfield War. Or, I never have either. That's always eluded me. Yeah, I never saw that one. I heard it was a good one. Didn't Redford direct it? Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I heard it was good too. Yeah. So maybe we'll maybe we'll cover that. It's got John Hurd in it. How about that? And Daniel Stern. 
We were oh, talking wow. about those guys. About both those guys being criminally kind of underused. Man, we should be serendipity. Yeah, no. Well, then there's another one, Alan Breeze, that I wanted to cover, which I heard was really good. It did. Um, oh yeah, that's uh, Robert Young's, right? Alan Breeze. Yeah, yeah. Robert Young did it, and it, you know, because it said if you like Al Norte, you'd like this, and you know, I liked Al Norte quite a bit. So well, Alan Breeze, I believe, won uh, Cannes Film Award. I believe. Yeah, so I'm I'm down. It's uh, looks pretty interesting. I, I wrote it down actually as we were going through the filmography. Alan Balista. Who's in that? I'm going to look right now. 1977. Little Domingo Embriz. Trinidad Silva. Trinidad Silva is a good character actor. Did a lot of comedies. He shows up as the coyote in um, uh, Al Norte. Yeah. No, he's got a great face, yeah. He does. He was young, too, when he died. Man, he's only 30 he did die young. Wow. Um, it's also got Ned Beatty in there playing Anglo Coyote. So the Anglo Coyote. I also got an actor in there named Tom Tarr, which is a great Tom name. Tarr. <laughs> it is. <laughs> My name was Tom Tarr. Hey, call me Tom Tarr. Tom Tarr, there, bye. <laughs> and some dude I saw on the bar sidebar here, speaking of Tom Tarr and sidebars, <laughs> some user list, this dude's got his 1,000 favorite films. <laughs> oh, thank God oh, for that. Goodness. Man, that's <laughs> a lot of films to be talking about. <laughs> that's a hell of a list. Is. Uh, okay, so my make or break, I'm going to go with the confessional scene. Uh, I think it's a great piece of acting between not only not only Bruce Davison because he's really kind of spilling it, but also uh, Jose Perez who has to take it all in. And you can kind of tell he doesn't want to, but he's kind of like the prison psychologist, the leader. Um, I also really like the setup of that scene. I like how everybody leaves. They set it up with the drink. Oh, it uh, makes it perfect. Yeah, just, it's so good. It's so good it takes its time. Uh, MVT... I don't know if I could give it to Robert Young because I feel like for me that this is Miguel Pinero's thing. A hundred percent. I agree. So that's why I'm going to give it to Miguel Pinero. It just feels like it's so much him that I just feel like Robert Young just shot that script as good as he could. So spot uh, on. Cause he doesn't really, there's, there's no flash. I mean, it's very competently directed. Don't get me wrong. It's very well done. It's just, this is one of those situations where you feel like the source material and the play and everything else is probably the most important part. Um, score for the film seven point five out of ten. It's very solid, very good. Um, if I had any complaint, it's that you do. There are so many characters that if you're not paying attention, uh, you can lose track of who's who and what the fuck they're talking about and the politics of it all. Um, but you know, that, that's a that's a small quibble. Not really, so it, it doesn't quite reach eight for me. But seven point five, I'm, I'm pretty confident that it might stretch up to seven point seven five on rewatches and things. Maybe even an eight. Who knows? You there? I absolutely am. <laughs> okay. I uh, got caught with my pants down in these pepperage. Are you eating to stay awake? Are you doing that? You pulling I that am. move? <laughs> yeah. I've I done that these, before. <laughs> man, I got these pepperage farm baked sweet crisps or cinnamon sugar. Kind of oh, delicious. But anyway, I also want to say Mark Margolis shows up at the beginning of this film. You yeah. may not know his name. Yeah. But you know his face. And I always remember him as that motherfucker from Scarface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a great face. He's one of the mm-hmm. uh, the great character actors too. I mean, he's oh, he is. Yeah, Rec Room for a Dream. He was in the guy. Wrestler. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. Well, you studied drama with Stella Adler, man. I mean, he had actor studio heavy duty, man. I've seen him in so much stuff. I can't even begin to tell you. Man, he's, he's going hard, but he's got like seven things in pre production. Yeah, post production. He's got class and uh, trash in his filmography, <laughs> yeah. no doubt, man. Big time. Yeah, he played uh, in Scarface, Alberto the Shadow. Yeah, man. Motherfucker in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he shows up in Immortals and Black Swan. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, no, Arnofsky, plays... Arnofsky uses him a lot. I don't know why. Maybe he's a 
Good luck trying for him. He's in the wrestler. I'm looking to see if he was in Noah. Or a talisman. I'll be damned. He, 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 had a vo- he had a voice in Noah. So Arnowski must use him as like a good luck charm or something. Because I think he's... He's Aronofsky's talisman. Yeah, because he's, he's in every yeah. one of his films, man. Yeah. I'm looking. Like, Aronofsky's an East Coast guy. Is Aronofsky a Pennsylvania guy? No, he's a Brooklyn guy. Ah, uh, still, Philly's not that far away. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Cool. My, my stuff's very similar to yours. Make or break is the scene between Juan and Clark. It gives us everything we need. It gives us a chance for Clark to speak and to speak openly and honestly. Yeah. And for us as viewers, if we're going to get behind him at all, that's going to be the scene when we're going to. But we're also going to be repulsed. And Juan is us in that scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of, um, you know, MBT, I'm also going to go with Pinero. I think, feel like it's his material, man. It came from the heart. He wrote it in prison. It's incredible. My score is a little bit lower, or a little bit higher than yours, I should say. It's a 7.75. Yeah, Good so. film, man. Not not a great film, but yeah. I think great considering all the things you mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. to factor in. Um and well worth everyone's time. Not every film needs to be fucking an 8.5. I mean, come on. You know. No. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's good stuff, man. Yeah, I think we're pretty much on the same page. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, how we're always kind of a point two five away from each other. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I could see this being a 7.75. But I'll stick with my 7.5 because I did have some issues with it. That uh, You know, like, like I said, those characters, if you're not paying attention. Like, there's some good character oh, moments, yeah. too, where I wanted some more from certain characters. And I just... I didn't get it. But anyway, still, good film. All right, we're going to take a short break, come back and talk about Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires from 1965. We'll be back right after this. Hey, all you podcast listeners, here's an update. See here. We know some of that bad brown acid has been going around, but we've got an alternative. See here. Have these headphones here. Throw them on. See here. Movies for your mind. See here. See here podcast. We discuss music-related films once a month. Find us on iTunes or at see here. That's s e e h e a r. dot podbean. dot com. Just relax, listen, and float downstream. See here. Callback. Yeah, yeah. You you had me thinking about it the other day, and I was looking through my library of songs I have, and I was like, hey, I got that song. Let's go ahead and play that this week. <laughs> Amazing. That beaver eating Taco Bell. Look out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. You should people should definitely check out uh Promise uh, Less Claypool and Promise and they did a whole album of the music from the uh, original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka. And they should check that out. It's very bizarre. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Some people will hate it, but it's yes. uh I loved it. I thought it was very interesting. You got to admire people for doing different things, man. Yeah. Yeah, Les Claypool is one of those guys for sure. All right. Uh Planet of the Vampires, Austin Up says and uh I think you're going to lead on this one here. So uh, Mario Bava, Terrore dello Spazio. Uh, I guess that's how you say it. Terror, that's terror 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 dello Spazio. Terrore dello Spazio. I'll have the Terror not dello Spazio, please. Yes. <laughs> Some olive oil. Yeah, there you go. Uh, after landing on a mysterious planet, <laughs> a team of astronauts begin to turn on each other, swayed by the uncertain influence of the planet and its strange inhabitants. So if that synopsis sounds like th- something you've heard before, man, have you heard it before in a lot of films since then. Oh, so yeah. let's get into it. Uh, I think this was the third or fourth time you've seen this. I think it's like the fourth or fifth for me. Yep. What did you think this time? Well, I think that um, I'll be forthright in saying that I feel like this film's importance, much like Godzilla, yeah. this film's importance outweighs its quality of film. Uh, I don't mean yeah, to. Sorry. I don't mean to give that moment of silence there. That was for that was for the Bava fans to gasp. <laughs> yeah, no, but I do, and I also feel like it's a film that you know I was desperate to see on Blu-ray because the strength of this film really does lie in its production design, its costumes, um, above and beyond anything else. Yeah, I find you know my big complaint with Bava, as much as he's uh, a very clean filmmaker and, you know, shoots things well. Um, I've always felt like a, a, a good bit quaint and chaste for me with his early stuff. Um, even Blood and Black Lace. I just, you know, it teach their own, but I love the kind of gnarly back-end Bava, like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, not Kill Baby Kill. What's the Friday the 13th one? The one that Cunningham lifted so much from Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Bay of Blood. Bay of Blood. I uh, love Bay of Blood. I love um, Danger Rabbit Diabolic. Dogs the most. You like you Danger know. Diabolic. You Danger like. Diabolic's great. 60s, sexy, pop art. Which Diabolic, strangely, it had to have only been like three or four years after this, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Diabolic was actually pretty late in his career. It was 68. And this is 65. So there's yep. only three years between them. But I feel like there's a quantum leap in terms of ability to tell a story with mm. a specific voice. Because I feel like... Outside of the production design, the costumes and stuff, this film's very anonymous. Yeah. He did some interesting things in this period. It seems like he directed a few films as a, as a director named John M. Old. Uh, a couple of westerns, I think Road to Fort Alamo, and a film called The Gunman Called Nebraska, which I've never seen. But uh, And then Knives of the Avenger, but then Kill Baby Kill, which is known. Dr. Hey, Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs is kind of... It's a got bit, a following. I've never seen it because I'm yeah. not really into spy stuff. But. Yeah, it's kind of silly and very lighthearted. And Danger Diabolic come right after that, so um, it's interesting. I mean, you know, there's some interesting stuff there, but I agree with you. Uh, most of Bava's stuff for me kind of falls uh, either a bit flat. I mean, I do like Bay of Blood. I do like um, Rabbit Dogs, obviously. Uh, Danger Diabolic. I mean, there's Baron a, Blood. I actually, I really like. Yeah, there's a handful of films. Five Dollars for an August Moon is fun. Yeah, there's a handful of films he made that uh, I do John. quite enjoy. 
but sadly, uh, he made a few westerns, and his westerns are really not very good at all, which is kind of sad because I would think with his eye and the way he shoots things sometimes uh, with uh, production that he would make a pretty good uh, uh, spaghetti western director. But and of course, Black Sunday, even though it's very old school, it, it's still got some great imagery in it and stuff. So. Yeah, iconic just doesn't turn my crank, and yeah. I just don't have any interest in seeing Eric the Conqueror. <laughs> you know, I know. Yeah, some, yeah, yeah. He did some of those films too, didn't he? Yeah. Peplums, which I know Keith said, you know, hey, you got to see a couple of them, baby. But you know, stuff like Caltiki, the Immortal Monster, just not really my bag. But uh, you know, I'll always appreciate um, what he brought to the genre. Roy Colt and Winchester Jack. I want to see if I've seen that. I think I've seen that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Halsey. I know. Yeah, I know I've seen it. Spread Halsey Western, and it's not great. Yeah, I, I don't know that I have. I, I've seen some few Halsey westerns, but yeah. So um, at this point in his career, you know, what had he really done? A couple horror films, mm-hmm. you know. But then when he made uh, Knives of the Avenger, Kill Baby Kill, mostly known as like, a cinematographer, really still. Yeah, at this point, I guess he really was. But uh, I mean, he, he had done Black Sunday and he had done a couple other things. But for all the highs of Black Sunday, for some Black Sabbath. Yeah, he had already. Yeah, and he did Black Sabbath, but he'd also, you know, had done some peplum films in between. I mean, he was a working director. The guy didn't stop working. He was a workaholic. So, and I think he was a working director with this too. I mean, yeah. Oh, did I say? Forgive me. Did I say that? Um, I think he hit. He hit just about every genre. I think. <laughs> yeah, he did. He hit Jalo. He hit Supernatural. He did uh, peplum science, science fiction, fiction yeah. Euro crime, Western. spy. <laughs> Westerns and uh, and uh, monster movies and Dude, the big kind of uh, atomic age stuff. I think everything that was around when he was working, he didn't work long enough or live long enough to get into the. Po- it almost feels like the antithesis of what he is. For him to do a post-apocalyptic film would f- almost feel wrong because he's a very clean filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Post-apocalyptic is very scuzzy and sweaty and gross. Yeah. By nature, it's funny. It's funny because I feel like with Bava, and some people don't feel this way because some people love his early stuff so much. But for me, I feel like with Bava, like he was really just starting to get really, really solid, yeah. like toward the back end of his life. And unfortunately, uh-huh. he fell ill. Oh yeah. And you know, there's some stuff he did in the back end that it's questionable whether he did it or his son finished it and some stuff. But you know, Lisa and the Devil's pretty okay. Baron Blood, Bay of Blood. Yeah. I mean, these are these are pretty solid films. So, like in the mid seventies, he's really starting to hit his stride. But sadly, you know, I, I know he was a chain smoker. So, you know, I think that probably caught up with him. He was only sixty five when he passed away. So, I would say, I mean, oh, every picture I've ever seen of Mario Baba, he's got a cigarette. So, I'll tell you what, this is going to be controversial. I'll take even despite Danger Diabolic being in the mix, I'll take his nineteen seventy onwards output. Uh, versus his 60s output for me personally yeah 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 i mean i probably would too i mean i I love diabolic for certain ways and and i love some of the imagery of black sunday i don't love the movie but uh and and i like i like chunks of this which i I know we're going to get into about the chunks we like and there's chunks we don't like so but yeah, yeah yeah i mean i think when you talk about bava i think with probably the most important thing you can probably say is his influence on cinema is is pretty vast, but I don't know if he was as good a filmmaker as maybe his influence was. Yes, uh, later in his career, though, there mm-hmm. was. But yeah. yeah, and I should say Kino Lorber Scorpion put this film out, not Short Eyes. I can't remember who put out Short Eyes now. I should know that. Forgive me, because they did a pretty good job. But um, I, I should, I'll look that uh, up for you. Wait. Cool, cool. No, so I, I watched this with William, my six-year-old son, because I felt like it was tame enough that he could watch it. And 
you know, uh, it was a bit dry for him, but he stuck with it, man. He, you know, he did well with it. But getting back to the influence, I love the leather costumes in this. I feel like they've gone on to influence so many things. Oh, my Tron, God. Tron. X-Men. Uh, X-Men costumes. The rock, I mean, the rock band Striper. I mean, come on. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, absolutely. The, uh, Mike Tomlin's uh, BDSM wear. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's we're doing right. great. I think the team is solid. And uh, that's yeah. all I got to say. <laughs> yeah, my, no kidding. That's my Mike Tomlin uh, press oh, conference. <laughs> Um, but I feel like that stuff, and then you know the obvious things: Alien and Life Force. And Keno Lorber put out short us. Oh, they did both. So we had a double Keno Lorber show this. Yeah, week. they did Scorpion releasing it. Uh, yeah, Scorpion oh, released Keno cool. Lorber put it out. Yeah, cool. it's a limited edition, or there is a limited edition of that. Or maybe I wonder for the one we have is fifteen hundred copies. I didn't know that was limited. The short eyes. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Cool. Um, but yeah, the short the, the, the short costumes, the, the costumes, the collars, feel, the collars on these costumes drive me fucking nuts. Yeah, they're interesting. You know, they feel very much like motorcycle wear. <laughs> yeah. What a coup, though, to get them. I think they work really well. I mean, listen, I don't know how leather helmets can allow you to live in a or, or to, to to stay alive in yeah. this in hospital environment. But you know, we're willing to go past it because it's not really about that. Yeah. You know, Critique the film that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's style over substance, which is the Italian way in a lot of a lot of films. Um, this is let's talk about the influences of this film because I think this is a big chunk of our discussion. Sure. Um, obviously, there's Alien. Oh, uh, big time. We know, and, and you you also when you're going to look at that tree. Yeah. It's what did Alien yes. in turn influence? Yeah. Yes, it's not yes. just what did it directly influence because it becomes like a coaching tree in sports. Yeah. If it wasn't for this. Alien wouldn't exist. Yeah, there's bits of the thing. There's, but but the thing's kind absolutely of absolutely there is. Yeah, there's bits, but it's it's that's a little different. But it, let's let's talk about. I mean, I think Star Trek is influenced by this film, big time. I think uh, Lucio Fulci saw the fog machines in this and said, Ah, Bava, you got it. And man, that, he keeps him pumping in this. Man, <laughs> I, I was wondering how many people were coughing off off screen a lot in this, but <laughs> I think the thing is more more uh in line with it than you think because yeah. this film trades in mistrust and paranoia in a in a strange inhospitable environment which that's the thing yeah Spe- special effects and not i mean obviously special effects from 65 to 1980 what one 80 84 whatever 81 like whatever quantum it was. leap yeah it's Scott you, yeah you can see like this you know scott bacula-esque jump forward um but I was sitting there watching this, and I'm just sitting there thinking, man, there are so many films. I mean, you could even say, in a way, slasher films are inspired by this film. And obviously, it's a it's a bit of a boogeyman film with the you know things in the dark and, but like the cult, the the, the uh, or Life Force is another good example. Toby Hooper's Life I Force. Said, yeah, Life Force. Yeah. really, you know, very clear line to Life Force from but this. There's a very Star Trek moment where there's just these like colored blobs flying around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought that as well. And you can just picture Spock and Kirk going, going hey, did you see that? Did you see that? Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, there's That's so much uh, there's so much influence. I mean, we're, we're, we're probably skipping a ton of films, and there's probably people who have a lot more they can mention. But, I mean, if you watch this movie, uh, there's no way you can't see, like, a big chunk of modern science fiction and horror is inspired by this movie. Now, I don't know. I'm not... I'm a pretty good cinema cinephile. I'm a pretty good movie fan. I can't think of too many films that inspired Planet of the Vampires before that. I'm sure there might be something. 
But I feel yeah, I'm like, sure there's some of our friends that I know, but I don't know either. Yeah, but I but I feel like Planet of the Vampires was the one that just kind of put that foot down, and like that whole generation of filmmakers in the 70s and early 80s had to have seen it. Yeah, it was probably a cable staple, right? I mean, it had to have been. It was sold for the international markets with the dubbing and stuff. And I do know that it was adapted from a story. So, you know, but they picked the right story to adapt, you know, and they took Bava and they gave him a little bit of dough, not much at all. And he had these costumes probably from, you know, his cousin owned like a motorcycle shop or something. And, yeah. you know, he got these and, you know, he said Tron, like the, the new Tron, especially those costumes are identical. Oh, yeah. Almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're really, you know, but. Um, it's that kind of movie where I think everybody's kind of seen it because it's got a great title anyway. It had 15 titles overall, but. Planet, Planet of the Vampires is a pretty evocative title yeah it is i mean you, you hear that title you're like you know i want to see that movie i don't know what it is i just want to see it so well i'll tell you another thing to, to show how far reaching the influence is william and i and when we were watching it i had said to him because you know we're big 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 fans of uh, batman brave and the bold right the cartoon it's you know very for those known as very fun it's kid friendly but it's very fun and tongue-in-cheek and a lot of great little kind of b and c and d characters from dc team-ups and fantastical stuff but there's an episode of Brave and the Bold that is very clearly homaging this film. Mm. Batman gets turned into a vampire, and he lures uh, he lures Aquaman and Blue Beetle and all them onto the the Justice League uh, ship for a meeting. And he, you know, there's sort of mistrust starts flying around, and you know, it's very much influenced by this. The way it's heavy with the kind of the gels and scenes. Yeah, you know. Um, and it's curious too. I always like seeing science fiction from then and seeing the technology that they're speaking of and trying to see if the ripples that it, like what it's foretelling is in any way, shape, or form comparable to what we're doing now. You know, you get the FaceTime thing. I had to explain to William when they're on these conference calls. Yeah. I had to say, hey, listen, I said, you may just think they're on Skype right now, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something, people. This is a really wild idea, William, because when I was a kid, <laughs> That's all it was. Was like you remember Back to the Future Two? I think it is with Marty talking to his parents or his boss or something. Yeah, you know, it's just that thing. You know, we couldn't have thought video video calls. I remember Total Recall. I think there's some video calls too. Yeah, you know, science fiction's always been fixated with the video call, and this might be the first video call, maybe. Right? Yeah, I mean, maybe. who knows? Maybe yeah. it's not. But but yeah, there's all these little things like um, even you know like the 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 siren in this or the red the red beacon in the in the uh, ship. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe Kubrick saw it and, you know, homaged it with Hal. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like Kubrick did see this film. I feel like there's uh, some influence on even 2001 here. And yeah. 2001 is a very influential film, but I feel like, I feel like you know, he's seen some bits and pieces. Uh, Absolutely. Stuff and especially there's some stuff i'm sorry no 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 i insist go ahead no i mean i'm just saying there's stuff i couldn't tell you i couldn't pinpoint it right off the top of my head i'd have to be watching it with you to show you yeah but i just felt like there was moments where there, you know yeah you there totally was and it was even to the point where i think that kubrick would admire how clean being a photographer too mm -hmm. and baba being a photographer how clean baba shoots his films yeah well, I think you know. one of the reasons one of the reasons why Bava doesn't move the camera that much is because he shoots stuff so cheap, and he uses a lot of matte paintings, and he uses a yes. lot of uh, mirror tricks and things like that to make things look big. So, because he does that, I think it kind of cripples him a little bit, and and kind of uh, style. I mean, he lighting and cinematography are fine, mm -hmm. but he's not known for moving the camera. He's not known for 
kind of like getting into the weird perspectives and getting around some weird angles and things like that. At least not to me. No, to me, I would agree. It's with more that lighting statement. than anything else. Yeah, lighting, production design, cinematography is not it. I mean, he can frame a shot wonderfully, but yes. the you know he doesn't move it quite as well. You know, one of the things I love about this film is I, I really love that feeling how people aren't themselves and mm. you can't trust yourself. Yeah. And as the film goes on, all the stuff starts to get ratcheted up where the moaning gets louder, the wind's howling. Oh, and I'll tell you another film that's heavily influenced by this. Um, it's a bit a bit divisive. I saw it on Mushrooms and it blew my mind and I still always have a soft spot for it, is Event Horizon. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Totally, man. I should say you haven't seen it, but uh, Ridley Scott's Prometheus still, even though that's coming off a guy that did Alien, yeah, it still has a lot of Planet of the Vampires in it, man. He's still going back to that well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how influential this art. It's amazing how the imagery and kind of the kind of story structure of this film is has stuck around so long. This and uh, it from another what was it? It came beyond whatever that film was that. Inspired a thing. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head now. Fuck. Oh, yeah. I know the I've one. The Hawks a, film. Yeah, I've seen it a thousand times and I can't even remember what the fuck yeah. it's called. That's what the thing from another planet, right? Yeah, I think, so. I think so. I think so. <coughs> that's oh, the uh, opening door movie. There's a, that's the movie where they keep opening and shut doors, opening and shutting doors just so they can set up that one scene where they open it and the monster's there because you, you get so used to opening up doors, opening up doors. Like, you know, you're turning into Pavlov's, Pavlov's dogs, you know, you're just like, oh, nothing's going to be there. Nothing's going to be there. And then all of a sudden they hit you with one. You're like, holy shit. Yep. No, totally. It's funny. It looks like uh, Bava, not to digress too much, but uh, he shot a film in 1952 called Dad Becomes Mom. Mm. Now, what's interesting about the film. I think I watched a clip like that the other night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's interesting though is the actress in it, Giovanna Ralli, beautiful man. She was in that. What is she? Spaghetti Western. She was in uh, Mercenary. Fuck, she's beautiful, man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Oh talking about. my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what's talking about. She's yeah. so beautiful. And what have they done to your daughters? Remember, she was the. Um, she was older in that. She had shorter hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, dynamite that woman. But um, we should yeah, really I, say in this film, if for those who really love Italian cinema, probably they're only. The the females in this are very pretty, but and but I don't I don't remember them from a whole lot of stuff. I don't. But uh, probably the face you'll know the most in this film is probably Ivan Resimov, who we've talked about on the show several times. He's great in torso and so many things. He's got a great face. He totally does. Although he's kind of yeah. not really, he's not really prominent in this. But I mean, the minute you see him, you're like, oh, there's there's Resimov. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. But yeah, Evie uh, Marandi is in this. I don't know her from anything. She was a Greek actress that worked in Italy. The women look good enough, but they, yeah, like you said, you know, to to call a spade a spade, I not to call yeah. a spade, but to, but to be frank, you know, I think they. Uh, oh like man, Stelio Candeli, who was in Play the Vampires, was also in Demons. Hmm. Oh, oh. Huh. Well, I'd have to. I'd have to be looking for. Her. That face to even know that because I only know remember certain faces. She did some of these Italian spy movies that uh, Evie Morandi. Oh wow! Yeah, and then Norma Bengal. Yeah, the, the women. I have to say this though, and you and I had said this. I feel like the film itself. So the influence is you know good it looks for the you know for the the time and stretching a dollar and mm-hmm. you know the gel lighting looks great and the fog machine's fucking pumping like it's. <laughs> 
you know, like yeah. a real, like a nightclub of epic proportions, man. <laughs> like jo- like John Travolta's going to, yeah, like Fulci's beating off and John Travolta's <laughs> getting ready to clear the floor. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Fulci's all he's got on is a sweater. He's squatting down, no pants or anywhere on, just rubbing out fast, man. Glasses are hanging half off his face. Glasses are hanging off. No, he, he's smart enough. He's got the rope on so they don't fall off from the ground. He's losing in that fog, man. <laughs> this is my conquest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going to be jumping into frame, man. With his dick in his hand. Rest in peace, Lucio. Sorry, man. Rest in peace. Um, but uh, I got to ask you, and I, I tried to find the genesis of this. There's the line in this film, classic line. We've all heard it uh, countless times. Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah, yeah. I know. I heard that, and I was like, "Wow, is this the first time that's ever been said?" I doubt it. Somehow, I doubt it. But I don't know. Sixty-five. I mean, you're talking about. You're 50 years ago. Yeah, you're talking, yeah, 50 years. You're talking about maybe uh, even before the heavy spaghetti western dialogue, right? I mean, yeah, that's right, because spaghetti's really came about, what, 63? 63, 64, yeah. 64. So, I mean, listen, if someone knows the answer to that question, I'd be dying. Because I tried to Google a few different things. Yeah. I couldn't find it. I got all NRA bullshit. I couldn't really find anything. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I couldn't find anything, but I'd be curious to see if that's so the genesis of it. But, um, I just I love how things start to get rapid, um, ra- ratcheted up, almost, almost in a way like a, a grandfather version of, um, Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. it's just constant or the fog, right? Constant yeah. kind of slowly tension gets ratcheted up. Sound effects get right, you know, piped yeah. in more and louder, and and we know John Carpenter was influenced by Italian cinema. He's talked before oh, yeah. about Deep Red, and I'm sure he. Black Sunday and playing the vampires and Bay of Blood. I'm sure you know he sell all those too. Mm-hmm. Like Cunningham totally. saw Bay of Blood. You know, I think Cunningham oh, though, man. unfortunately, is one of those guys who tried to say he hadn't seen it. Well, yeah, man, motherfuckers were getting away with it back then because there wasn't DVD or anything. Yeah, yeah, and then even the, even when VHS a shameless ripoff. Yeah, but. even in VHS in its infancy, and once VHS demand took off, that's when you started seeing all those Italian films coming over here under different titles and blah blah blah. But. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you would have saw stuff, you know, like uh, Brian De Palma. You really feel like, you know, Dress to Kill is uh, totally yeah. a Dario Argento film in a lot of ways. Oh, man. It totally, it's so bonkers, too, like Argento. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. I know, I know Shempy, when, when we said about Cunningham, he's screaming this through his headphones. Cunningham claims that he never saw Bay of Blood. Yeah. That's such a lie. Such a lie. Yeah. There's too many similarities. <laughs> yeah. I feel that way too. I feel like oh he's... man, it's like it's like uh, what's his name saying he never saw um, Slither. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, James Gunn or, saying he never, James, saw, never saw never saw Night of Creeps. Yeah, Night of the Creeps. Yeah, Come exactly. on, man, let's get serious. Um, <laughs> or Quentin Tarantino never saw anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. All right. Um, All right. <laughs> I love uh, I love the confessional box in this. Yeah, when they're talking into it because I feel like with a film like this, where it's more fixated on the mistrust, it allows the characters. It's an easy way for the characters to convey their thoughts and emotions and fears quite well. Um, I think sometimes the Spartan kind of spare design mm. that they have for some of the sets it lends itself well to that sort of isolation and fear that they have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it works quite well. You know, another thing I really love in this film, and I think this is not having seen Prometheus, but you know, picking up bits and bites along the way. I love, and this is also Event Horizon, I love when they get on that other ship. Yeah. And I find these huge 
almost like dinosaur-esque bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's in Prometheus as well, yeah. And it, what's amazing about that is not only does it look good and visually it's great, it, it makes you feel like it's that thing of, man, if these things, whatever they are, got felled by this planet, yeah. what are we in for? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic device. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some really great shots, the end of that sort of circular corridor, you know, the one that's like a corkscrew. Again, yeah. they use that in Event Horizon quite well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not as big a fan. Well, I shouldn't say biggest fan because you were under the influence when you saw it, so you have a soft spot for it. But yeah. with a critical eye, I'd be curious what you think of it. I'm not as big a fan of Event Horizon, although I do quite like the production design on the film. It is good. And I'll tell you, that the footage, Sam Neill's great in it. The footage that's shot, like the found footage that Sam Neill finds, all that stuff's really strong. Yeah. I've seen it since, like, uh, Sans Hallucinogens. It's still, like, a six and a half for me, but there's some stuff that makes me groan. Like, Jack's, Jack Noseworthy, that stuff's kind of weak. Oh, yeah. When he's kind of saying, Mama Bear, <laughs> all this bullshit, it's not very good. But it's still, I still like it. I still like it. Um, yeah. And I like it because it's nasty horror sci-fi, which we don't have enough of. Yeah, you don't see, the, every now and then one will come out, right? Very rare. Well, yeah. And, and let's not forget, the thing that makes Alien and, and that film, all these films so effective is when shit does go pear-shaped, mm. you have nowhere to go. Yeah, exactly. And that's really the terrifying thing. Yeah. Um, well, it's also, hop- it's also that basic human fear of the unknown, right? I mean, Absolutely. let's say me and you are hanging out. We uh, go driving down the road in eastern Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, car breaks down. We see one house with a window on up on a hill in the middle of nowhere uh that light goes out and we go up there and we find out the door's open we go inside immediately your hair is on in you have the hair on if you're a cat the hair on your back's up because that is a natural human instinct to be feared be to be to be scared of the unknown you don't know what yeah. you're walking into so i think that's why these stories always work so well i mean some of my favorite films are this plot um, oh yeah it's a wonderful setup it's yeah. a wonderful setup yeah, I mean, it works as good as the Tin Little Indian plot for slashers and Giallo. I mean, yeah. it's just it's which such he's a also used in a few of his Giallos. Yep, yep. I think was a five dollars for an August Moon. I think he used it, and mm-hmm. you know, Bay, a few of them. Bay of Blood, but essentially. Bay of Blood. Yeah. How about that dinosaur distress call? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I got this theory about this film. I'm gonna go ahead and get this out now because you're kind of going through your notes and you kind of got the same things I got. Uh, there's long stretches in this film of discovery without much dialogue, and, and there's because of that, there's a lot of time where I'm looking away. And we've talked about this, the pacing in this film. We I don't know if we talked about this review yet, but we can say so now. The pacing in this film is 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 way off in spots, and it shouldn't be because it's only a 90 minute film, less yeah. than 90 minutes. I had this theory that the footsteps on the metal platforms are for you to kind of re- look back up at the screen. <laughs> maybe yeah, <laughs> because maybe they're so. they're so prevalent. The running on these metal platforms in the spaceship uh, that I kept thinking. uh, Every time I'd look away, I'd hear these footsteps and them running. I'd look back up like, what are they doing? (laughs) You check back in. You mean, what's going on? In all all seriousness, I say this not as an insult because, you know, the first time I ever watched this film, sure, I was watching the whole thing because I'd never seen it before. But once you've seen a film five or six times, you know when you can look away and when you can't because it all kind of, since memory kind of all comes back. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, with Planet of the Vampires, one of the problems is the pacing is so off. For me, and I think for you as well. For me as well, yeah. There's big stretches where you could say nothing's going on. That's not really the truth. But what is going on isn't super interesting. It's flat. It's 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 kind of flat. Yeah. And 
you know, some directors have a knack for squeezing tension out or other things. There's that one thing, too, I hate about, you know, sometimes about older cinema, too, or especially older science fiction, where, you know, your characters explain everything that's right in front of you, or you see it, too. And it's just like, come on, you don't have to explain that to me. No, no, it's it feels clumsy and whatever. And how about too? I mentioned the dinosaur distress call, but again, <laughs> to bring it back to Kubrick, and here comes a real tinfoil helmet kind of theory. I have this image of the dinosaur distress call as Fred Flintstone slamming a hammer down on like a, some of the big dinosaur's toe and him screaming, <laughs> ah! "Hey, time to go home!" No bitch. kidding, man. <laughs> no kidding. But there's this, there's this. I can't remember where the sound is in this. But I feel like it's the exact same sound that Kubrick uses during the masked orgy scene, like that. Oh, la, 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 oh, la. <laughs> oh yeah. like he uses that, yeah. and it's from this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it might be the same piece of music. I don't know. It might be the same, like Gregorian monks <laughs> chanting. I don't know, man, what it is. But it, again, there's too much kowinky dink here for good old Stanley Boy to have not uh, seen it. Mm. And uh, yeah, those are kind of all my notes. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to add. I do like the Zippo laser guns. Did you like those like lighter guns they had? They had guns that shoot lasers, but it really just looks like a Zippo at the end. <laughs> the guns looked better than John Saxon's <laughs> toilet plunger gun in Hands of Steel, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. They yeah. looked all right. They looked all right. <laughs> Compared to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but fuck, he only had two props in the whole movie. He had a cell phone. He had a fucking plunger gun. <laughs> yeah, it's true, man. That oak desk. <laughs> he had the Henry Silva role in that film. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of dialogue uh, in the film, but then there's a lot of stretches with no dialogue. And I think that mix really kind of grates on you. I think most people... When, when, when I posted this, uh, you know, that I was watching, some people said it was their favorite Bava. Um, I can see that because the influence is so heavy on so many things mm-hmm. that we all love. But I it, I mean, it's easily not my favorite Bava. Easily I, not mine. It's not even my top five. I admire the influence, sure. But like a lot of films that influence genres and sometimes greater films, it doesn't necessarily mean just because they influence those that they're the superior film. Maybe he came up with it first. Maybe he came up with some of the stuff first. But that doesn't, I mean, just because you come up with something first doesn't mean you perfect it. So, No, absolutely not. And you bring up a very good point. And I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I would say that this film, more than any of his films, were indebted to its influence. Yeah. But conversely, he came into the Eurocrime game at the back end yeah. and made one of the best films the genre's ever seen. Yeah, it's a, you know, top easily top 10 Eurocrime film. Absolutely top 5 for me. Yeah. Maybe I, top 3. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. I, and it, that is weird because it is so late cycle and then, it's that, not influencing anything. Yeah. And by that time you're, you know, you're already into uh you know the Million uh, comedy p- pictures. Yeah, you're stuff. getting into the parodies of the genre mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's on its last legs a little bit and it's if anything, it's him being influenced by all of that and trying to one up it and make it nastier and sleazier and sweatier and yeah, you know what I mean. Well, I mean, he, he, half his job's done because he cast George Eastman, right? Yep, he knew exactly what he was doing. PP, yeah, <laughs> PP. He, he knew, knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, you, whenever you cast George Eastman, you, you know you know what you're doing. <laughs> you totally do. I mean, you don't cast him for the. Uh, well, I guess you could cast him for the suave debonair type, but. He's playing well, Baba Yaga's guy. director did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but he's a good-looking guy, but I mean, and big, imposing figure. But yeah, he seems to be attracted to the sleaze more than anything. Uh, 
It's funny you mentioned that you and William watched. You said William, right? You and William watched this. Yeah, me and William, William and I watched it because he's on March break. So, you know, yeah, it's good I want to start getting him into like maybe Raiders or Lost Ark, a couple yeah, other things yeah. like that. I think this is a good early sci-fi kind of horror hybrid for kids. Right? Yeah, I thought so too, man. The pacing's a little... It might cause some off, issues but. with yeah with modern children. Let's be honest. You got to talk them through it. You got to say, oh, William, yeah. see they use this for the blood or yeah. see those <laughs> ships or, you know, you kind of got to talk them through things to kind of keep their interest because if you just don't say a word. Yeah. Yeah. But you could see where like the right age seeing this is kind of like with me and you seeing the thing. Totally. Or, or totally something like is. that where it's this pivotal moment where your genre cinema appetite kicks in or something like that. Yeah. So. Oh, for sure, man. He had said, look at the, 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 the blood in this film. You yeah. know, he could tell that, you know, technology with <laughs> fake blood. It's not that he's seen a ton of blood on screen, but, you know. It Enough, was, yeah. Uh, it's inevitable. You're going to see some, so. Yeah. No, but it was interesting for me to see him process some of it. And, yeah, no, for sure. I think for me, watching this film this time, I've always kind of thought the cinematography was the key, and it is still great, but I think the production design is the key component to this movie, just like it is with Diabolic. Um, I think if Baba did anything really great, it was design movies. Uh, Yeah. And he was a very solid cinematographer. We know that. Um, But his design sensibilities mixed with that cinematography is really where his bread and butter is. And um, this is another example of that, in my opinion, of the kind of great production design. The sets look good. Uh, mm-hmm. They're a little, they're, they kind of revisit them a little too much. But yeah, like, a little too much. We haven't even mentioned the plastic wrap. Yeah. 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 But like you said, they get that great moment where they go where you get these giant bones and uh, all that stuff. You got the great uh, kind of cylindrical uh, doorways that they get oh, the door fantastic. open. And the way they're running down, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, they're only going to run so far because that's probably mirrors. But they ran all the way down that hallway. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, how much of that shit did they build, you know? They're gasping in that leather, man. Yeah. So set decoration is done by Giorgio Giovanni, who I'm trying to think if I've – that's almost – I mean, that name so sounds so common that it almost feels like I would have seen him seen his name somewhere else. When he did Black Sunday, it's like he just mostly did – he did Last Man on Earth at uh, – uh, Vincent Price. Vincent Price film. film, yeah. 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 He didn't really do as much as I thought. Huh. Hmm. I mean, there's some stuff in there. Rome against Rome. He did some Peplum films, stuff like that. So it's interesting, though. Um, well, I wonder if that's. No. Yeah, that is it. So, yeah, he didn't do a whole lot. But I mean, I think this production design is really good. I like the, like you said, the gels on the thing. We should also say that we were talking about Lamberto earlier. This is, I think, his first professional credit. Oh, wow. He was uh, assistant to his dad on this. And uh, this was his first kind of, I'd love to talk to Lamberto Bava. Can you imagine all the I great know. stories he has? Oh, man, about all the greats. Yeah, because he worked with just about all of them toward, you know, and he, you know, would meet them and stuff because so many people looked up to his dad, so they would talk, go to see him and stuff. But, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, totally, man. Talking about, you know, how he was inspired for the katana like ninja motorcycle scene in the theater and demons i mean there's so many things to talk about man yeah it says here he started doing assistant director work on gunman called nebraska which somebody just watched recently and posted a picture on our i think was that no that was sacramento no maybe that was sacramento not sacramento joe or something something yeah but i guess he had uh it looks like playing the vampire 65 yeah that is his first credit as assistant to the director wow 1977 he was the continuity guy on jungle holocaust what a bad gig that was. <laughs> Jesus. Working for Diodato on his on his pre-Cannibal Holocaust film. That's amazing. That one has some nasty moments in it. It's got Ivan Rasimov again. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Jungle Holocaust, right before Cannibal Holocaust, where Diodata really digging the Holocaust stuff. But yeah, I mean, unfortunately, Lamberto, like you said, you you talked about him. You know, he has done some quality stuff. Yeah, um, man. Sadly, he's he's done some bad stuff too. But I mean, whatever. Can't win them all. Can't win them all. Exactly. <clears throat> Two thousand seven, he did a film called Ghost Son. I think uh, uh, Sylvan Gold should do Ghost Son and Ghost Dad. That'd be amazing. As a back-to-back film. That's got Pete Postlethwaite in it. How the fuck that happened? Well, well Pete likes to cash <laughs> damn checks. Yeah, he did. And, uh, we talked about that. Well, I mean, I, I like I like uh, Lamberto, too. You know you know, I have an affection for uh, Blast Fighter. Oh, and, yeah. And some of his other films. Obviously, yeah. Demons and Demons 2 we both love. So Yeah, the height of his. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot more to add. I mean, um, ooh, I didn't know Carlo Rambaldi made the models in this film. I just found that out. Oh, just wow. Now. Very cool, man. Yeah, I didn't know that. Very cool. Rambaldi's legendary, for those that don't know his work. He's been on our show before with Possession, and he did E.T., and yeah. you know, I think he just died last year, didn't he? Uh, two or three years ago now. Jesus, man. Yeah, time terrible. flies. I remember when we heard about that, yeah. Very yeah, I didn't, uh, he's, got an uncredited, he's uncredited on this, but he did work on it. Crazy. Anyway, special effects by Mario Bava and Carlo Rambaldi. That's crazy. They did the special effects themselves. Bob I guess, was never afraid to roll his sleeves up and get to it. No, no, he'd do anything. You know, even he he'd have a cinematographer. But from what I understand and have read, uh, every cinematographer I ever worked with him was just there to kind of move the camera and stuff or set the camera up. He was mostly doing the cinematography. So you know, he just you know whatever. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what your make or breaks uh, MVTs and your score, especially for this is. So go ahead. Well. Make or break scene. I'm gonna go with a make. I love the. I love, love, love the scene when they're exploring. They get on that ship and see those like dinosaur ass bones. Yes, agreed. Because it it really jump starts it. Because the film's flat, but there's there's moments that I think they kind of trump. <clears throat> they are more memorable than the parts of the film. Sometimes are more memorable than the sum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the moment for me. Mm-hmm. Really, and I think that's a de- that is a device of if you see something be felled that is greater perception is it's greater than our hero or our character, then it it just really gets you kind of going oh boy. Um, MVT, I am going to go with Bava's production and costume design. It is the highlight of the film. Um, it's not the acting, it's not a score, it's not the cinematography or anything else, but mm-hmm. it's. Well, you know what? Really, that'd be the easy choice. But I guess I really got to go with its influence. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's its ability to influence so many genres that we love. Yeah, I as think, much I think the knee jerk choice is the the aesthetics. But I mean, yeah, what, I don't really see what else you can. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's a template for so many films. <clears throat> you can't really go with anything else. My score is a six point five. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah, we're That's in it. we're in uh, pretty much uh, agreement all week this week here. Simpatico, dear yeah, buddy. Yeah, make or break for me is also the discovery of the large species. You'd almost think we get together and discuss what our make or breaks and stuff are going to be beforehand, <laughs> but it's not really the case at all. So when I Never I hear you no. say this stuff, I'll just sit here and smirk and shake my head up and down. Uh, my MVT, I could also I wrote down production design, I wrote down influence, I wrote down Bava because he's so prominent in all the stuff. But I agree with you, the influence of the film is more important than anything. Uh, absolutely it really is one of the most influential films especially for our generation of film lovers um i'd say that it might be one of the most influential films uh my score is also a 6.5 i agree with you uh 
it's you know obviously it's watchable and it's it's not bad um but it, it it's not great either it's not it's not I mean, me and Will were talking before we started recording this thing. Let's just let the cat out of the bag. We both kind of talked and said, okay, we've seen this now on Blu-ray. Kind of like the quintessential way right now to see it. Will we ever watch it again? And um, I got to say right now, unless something really happens, I'll I'll probably never watch Planet of the Vampires again. I feel like I've gotten everything I can get out of the movie at this point. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I like to have it on my my shelf to see it there. Mm Mm-hmm. They probably won't watch it again. Yeah, and, I, and one day I'll no show it to my son. Yeah, one day I'll show yeah. it to my son, or you know, maybe he'll be into that kind of stuff, and I'll show him that stuff. And this is a good one to kind of open those doors. But for me personally, you know, seeing it now five times, five or six times, four or five times, I don't know how many times I've seen it, and this is the best I've seen it. Uh, maybe not much. I mean, the blue looks good. It looks really good, but it doesn't. You know, uh, I feel like it could have looked a little bit better. But anyway, uh, saying that. Uh, I just don't know. I mean, if there's a 4K release of Planet of the Vampires, am I going to watch it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think uh, I think I might have played out my Planet of the Vampires vibe. Um, yeah. But still, it's good. And I can understand why people like it, you know. Just like with, uh, I mean, I like it more than I like Black Sabbath. But, you know, to each their own. But I'm with you. Oh. I like that later cycle stuff with Bava and stuff. It feels like to me he really just kind of got his motor going. Oh, in, yeah. the, in the right direction man. yeah in that right direction toward the back end of his career um not that not that that's a bad thing i think he did some solid stuff in the early parts of his career and obviously he was a talented guy but um i really would like to have seen you know 10 or 15 more years of what he would have done up to you know his 80s oh man because i mean you're talking about a guy that in his early 60s uh made a very aggressive film i mean there's very few filmmakers like that it's kubrick there's uh Scorsese, you could say, because I guess Wolf of Wall, yes. yeah, Wall Street's very aggressive. Absolutely. And you're talking about guys that, you know, usually when they get older, they don't make films like that. They usually kind of back off. Nope. So, uh, no, not at all, man. Interesting. All right, that's the show for this week. DiabolicDVD.com. Again, head over there. Tell them we sent you over. Buy some stuff. Get some stuff. Love some stuff. Yes. And, uh, yeah, what are we doing next week? I, I, I think I got a Facebook message, so I think our plans changed from what we originally had talked about. Yeah. We were originally going to announce something, but we'll announce it at the end of uh, next week. Um, but next week we're going to be talking about a very special guest, a dear friend of ours. He's programmed the hell out of our show before. Um, and, yeah, he's picked two really <laughs> real conversation pieces for sure. Um, it's going to be our good friend Ghetto Tim. Uh, fellow Canuck by way of South Korea, or South Korean, I guess, by way of Canada. That's more accurate, right? Yeah. Um, and he's picked Tears of the Black Tiger, which is insane. Yes. And Tokyo <laughs> Fist. Which I've never seen. Yeah, no, it'll be fun. It's going to be a fun show, man. I've seen Tears of the Black Tiger, but I've never seen... Uh... That's bonkers. I know Nick Cage for years was trying to uh, get that remade. Well, it's totally a Nick Cage film, oh, isn't it? It totally is, man. It totally is. It's totally his kind of movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, so it's it's bonkers. We're gonna have Shinya Sukamoto, and we're gonna have I can't remember the the director's name that did um, Tears the Black Tiger, Black Tiger, Black Tiger. Uh, Thai names are a motherfucker for me, though. Yeah, I, I didn't look it up right now. I was looking up Tokyo Fist because I was trying to see if I had. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty positive I've not seen this. I know I haven't seen this. I'm pretty positive I have not seen this. this is one of those ones that people have always told me to check out, and I never got around to. So, looking forward oh. to finally checking it out. That's right. Nice. All right. So, yeah, that's next week's show. Ghetto Tim's back on. We're going to do some Asian cinema. Uh, yeah, that'd be fun. All right. 
Uh, yeah, we got some big announcements coming. Uh, we got some good stuff heading your way. We're excited. Hopefully, everybody else will be excited when we mention them. We don't want to kind of blow our load yet, so <laughs> so uh, right. we will when we have to, obviously. Um, so yeah, I don't really have anything else to say, man. Uh, thanks everybody uh, for the kind words on the intro. We did, I did last week. Uh, I always feel like I just kind of throw those things together haphazardly. So when people say nice things, I appreciate it. I just want to get that out there. Oh, for sure, man. You did a good job as always. Also, the uh, I should say over the last couple months or so, we've had a couple sporadic donations. Uh, appreciate that as well. Um, we are running out of funds for the show. I think we're down to about maybe two or three months left. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't really want to do the Kickstarter thing again, though. So I don't know. We'll figure something out. Maybe we'll do something. Maybe we'll just make it all Facebook. We seem to have enough interaction there with people that uh we're not looking i'm not looking anyway for you know a major bankrolling thing i just i'm happy if we can just finance a year that's right show. so that's about 400 bucks 400 something bucks so I'm, I'm very happy with that but yeah i'll just go ahead and mention now if you know if you like donate you can head over to the blog there's a donate button over there you can click on that i don't know if the one on the ggtmc libsyn page works anymore but i know the one on the blog does so head over there and you can donate to the show. So if you go to the Libsyn when you can't find it, let us know. Yeah, I mean, not find out if it doesn't work. I should say. Well, some people have said it doesn't work, but some people say it works. So I don't know if it just doesn't work for certain like web browsers or or what. So I don't know. Who knows? But uh, some of them are getting through either way. And I appreciate the. I don't like to say we never mentioned names, but I appreciate the. Uh, we appreciate the donations. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Uh, okay, that's it. The big show. I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.